Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see my colleagues, uh, Senator Lieberman and my fellow commissioners. A special welcome back to Donna Shalala. Great to have you with us again, Donna. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you, you missed all these uh, virtual meetings. Uh, I think this is the, uh, the fifth, uh, Donna, that we've had uh, since last March. We're on our way to holding an in-person meeting when obviously COVID hit us and the impact's been that uh, we've stayed focused. Uh, with a terrific team and focused on the mission that we've been doing it with uh, these virtual meetings. And uh, hopefully, hopefully sometime later this year, we'll be all be together and uh, gather in person. So it's a pleasure to welcome my colleagues back. Uh, I think I need a couple of thanks in order. Uh, Hudson Institute, uh, you're our fiscal sponsor. Uh, we're grateful for uh, your sustained support of this bipartisan commission. Uh, we're also uh, appreciative of your willingness to let us host those activities, and we can't wait to get back in your facility and do them in person. We also want to thank our very uh, generous, uh, many, frankly, very generous supporters who have been with us for several years. We want to thank them for working with us to uh, help strengthen our national, our national biodefense capability. Uh, we're here today to discuss uh, the critical role uh, some of our country's heroes, uh, our first responders, that play in uh, addressing biological threats. I must admit that I uh, know some of their good work because of the two occasions when I needed their help and uh, without their participation in uh, getting me uh, to the hospital and taking care of me, I wouldn't be participating in this forum. So this uh, first responder, uh, Outreach today has a very special meaning to me, and I want to welcome them all. You know, we spend a lot of time, as we should, uh, focusing on nurses and doctors uh, who deserve our support, uh, our uh, respect, and our prayers as they've uh, moved for about a year, day in and day out, day in and day out into harm's way. But uh, today we want to focus on police officers, firefighters, emergency service professionals, hazmat technicians, and Dispatchers who are equally vital in responding to this biological threat. Uh, I've often thought the, the appellation first responder is so appropriate. Uh, the federal government talks a lot about first responders, but it's the local responders who show up first. The federal government uh, ultimately gets there, uh, but it's your neighbor next door who's the EMS professional, the police officer, or the firefighter that uh, rushes to your aid. And... Uh, I think their, their service during this pandemic has been uh, somewhat uh, underestimated and perhaps even undervalued because they worked tirelessly in support of their community and public health officials to respond to the needs of the men and women in their community. So I, I think that we held them a great, a great debt of gratitude. And on behalf of myself uh, and the commission, I wanna thank uh, all those who are speaking with us today and the constituencies they represent. Uh, we owe you a debt of gratitude for the tremendous work you've done during the past year. The commission recognized the daunting challenges facing the emergency response community when we released our national blueprint for biodefense over five years ago. And in that report, we discussed the importance of providing first responders with resources necessary to keep themselves and as importantly, their families safe during a biological event and uh, where far too many of our fellow Americans have fallen victim to the current pandemic 
And we often forget that some of those victims have actually been first responders who are responding to that crisis in their communities and in their neighborhoods. And uh, I guess when you think about that milestone of 525,000 deaths, uh, it's a sober reminder of how deadly the disease is and an equal reminder of how important it is to support our first responders who were actively engaged in trying to protect the health and safety of their fellow citizens. So we're glad to have representatives from each of the major response disciplines here today and ask them to offer their perspectives on things on how things are going with the COVID-19 response and biodefense more generally. But frankly, as we always have to do is we have to ask them what we've done, the federal government has done right, what it's done wrong, and what it can do better. Even now, because the COVID is going to be with us for quite some time. You know, identify a couple of the speakers for us for the benefit of the entire audience. We're going to talk to Fire Chief William Jones of East Liverpool, Ohio, uh, about what our firefighters need to carry out their duties on a day-to-day -day basis. We're glad to see Chief Philip Francisco of the Navajo Police Department. He'll be joining us. Uh, I'm glad we're uh, having the fire chief. This is a forgotten constituency in America. And the pandemic has hit the Navajo Nation especially hard. And I think certainly think we need to do it better by our country's original citizens. And we look forward to his recommendations as to how we can improve on our services to not only the Navajo Nation, but uh, as I said before, our country's original citizens. Uh, Dia Gaynor is executive director of the National Association of State EMS officials. She's gonna give us a high level picture of the pandemic's impact on emergency medical operations. As we've learned over the years, uh, there's really not a center uh, focus at the federal government of e on EMS. And uh, we're anxious to hear her observations relative to the impact of the Alaska focus, the last lack of organization uh, structure within the federal government to help support the nationwide EMS teams. And then uh, finally, the dispatchers are critical connections between the public in crisis and the steady hand that is, reaches out to us when we're in need. We're going to discuss the roles and needs of our dispatchers in biodefense with Sherry Bartram. She's the executive director of the Southeast Regional Emergency Service Authority. So with those preliminary remarks, expression of gratitude to be reconnected with my, my uh, panelists, uh, with my colleagues on this panel and with the panelists that are here, I'm going to turn it over to my friend and colleague, uh, Senator Lieberman. Joe? Uh, thank you very much, Tom. It's good to be back with you and all the other members of the Commission and our team uh, by virtual means, I must say, I'm getting uh, tired of this and looking forward to uh, an in-person meeting. I want to join you, Tom, in welcoming Donna Shalala back. Uh, we're really lucky that she's with us and uh, she's just a, a tremendous, well, a national asset. <laughs> uh, and incidentally, uh, uh, Lisa Monaco, who sat in for uh, Donna for a while seems well on her way to being confirmed as the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, which of course she deserves. And it's just possible, uh, from what I hear, she'll actually receive a fair amount of bipartisan support, which she deserves. Um, there is some reason uh, for hope on the horizon today. Of course, when COVID-19 began, uh, throughout the country a year ago, few people thought that it would be possible to bring a vaccine to market in less than a few years. 
And yet, against all the precedents and normal expectations, we have not one, not two, but three vaccines approved by the FDA for use in the United States, and they are working. Others throughout the world are creating their own vaccines. And of course, millions of Americans are now being vaccinated every day. This is a feat, an accomplishment that really needs to be recognized for the marvel that it is. And it should make us optimistic about what we, the American people, can do when we work together. The speed with which uh, we were able to develop, test, and bring these vaccines to market will save many, many lives, prevent more economic devastation, and allow us all to go back to something resembling normal life sooner uh, than later. Uh, I believe that uh, this is just the beginning of other similar revolutionary breakthroughs. And we hope that our commission can be uh, in the forefront of advocating and guaranteeing that those breakthroughs occur. As you all know, just a few weeks ago, the commission released a new report, uh, which we called uh, the Apollo Program for Biodefense. And in that report, we described and advocated for a transformative approach to addressing infectious disease outbreaks and other biological threats. We think that uh, a public-private partnership on a level rarely seen since the original Apollo space program has the potential to remove the threat of infectious disease outbreaks from our lives by 2030. As the nation continues to address the current crisis, we look forward to further discussing our recommendation for an Apollo program for biodefense with Congress and of course, uh, the Biden administration. In today's meeting, as uh, Tom Ridge has said, we're gonna get uh, the ground level perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic from the first responders. We need to start by saying thank you, of course, to our frontline personnel and offering them uh, our support going forward. I will tell you that during my time as uh, chair of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, I regularly saw how information and communication stovepipes negatively impacted disaster response efforts. And I learned uh, how the impact of September 11th, uh, 2001, Hurricane Katrina and other national tragedies was magnified by a lack of cohesion and communication in the field uh, and higher up the uh, chain. Uh, we risk hobbling our ability to respond swiftly and effectively when we deprive first responders of communication tools and others that they need to succeed. And that's why I'm glad we're going to be discussing today how we can better equip them uh, to do just that. Uh, late last year, the commission, our commission, convened a roundtable discussion with first responders to learn about their biological threat awareness and vaccination information needs. During that uh, discussion, participants described continuing 
gaps in knowledge in their understanding of the biological threat broadly. Uh, we also asked them uh, how the federal government could better assist in educating them uh, about infectious disease threats and the best uh, responses to them. So I'm grateful that uh, on our first panel, we have Jennifer Stone, Executive Director of Partner Forces, with us today to discuss some of the findings of that discussion. Uh, thanks to you, Jennifer, and your team for your assistance uh, in our work uh, with and for first responders. I'm also glad uh, that Mike Senna, President of the National Fusion Center Association, is with, with us to provide insights about how fusion centers, which most people don't know about, but are critically important to our uh, defense and security, provide really crucial information to state, local, tribal, and territorial members of the first responder community. And I want to uh, welcome Shumane Benford, Chief of Emergency Management of the City of Boston, Boston to discuss his personal experiences and communal information needs, both for COVID-19 and other biological threats. As Tom has said, in police stations, firehouses, and dispatch centers across the nation, our first responders have really felt the pandemic's effects and responded to them as best they could. At a time when uh, every level of government, uh, state, local, tribal, and territorial are having to make difficult spending decisions with budgets that have been battered by COVID-19, first responders need additional resources, coordination, and guidance from the federal government. And that is to me one of the big lessons to be learned from uh, the last year. Uh, when a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic strikes, uh, we need uh, an all hands on deck response, including, of course, in some ways, beginning with our local uh, first responders. But um, there is also no substitute for strong federal leadership uh, and coordination. And uh, I'm encouraged that the uh, new Biden administration understands that and uh, is exerting and showing that kind of leadership. So I end with a hope and a prayer by the time of our next public meeting, uh, or if not then, the one after that, we're all gonna be able to meet and uh, see each other in person, because really you look great on the screen, but it's been far too long to shake hands or even boldly give you all a hug. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Joe. I, by the way, I'm looking forward to that hug. Yeah, me too. I, I've been vaccinated, so I'm all ready. Listen, uh, and when, when, and how about Senator Dashwood? You're next, Tom. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tom and Joe. Uh, after your opening statements, a uh, little more needs to be said. Uh, I associate myself completely with your remarks and, and uh, share your jubilation at uh, the return of Donna Shalala and our gratitude to our sponsors. And let me just say, uh, like you have so eloquently, how grateful we are for the first responders across this country, 
not only in the COVID context, but in so many others. I can't think of an American family who hasn't been affected in some way uh, by a first responder in a positive way. Tom, you personally articulated your own experience, but all of us have had experiences, whether it's personal or within our family, where we can be so grateful to the first responders in our communities for the heroic job they do each and every day, 24 hours a day. And so we're, we're so grateful. I think our purpose today is to ask the question, how can we make their job easier? How can we do a better job of ensuring that they can be successful in all that they do each and every day when they come to work and dedicate their lives and their professional work to, uh, to improving the lives of their uh, community members? And I think there are, as Joe and, and you, Tom, have noted, I think there are three key criteria to improving the, 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 the opportunities for success in this context. The first is, as Joan noted in particular, just in his closing remarks, is communication. There's got to be a good level of communication at all levels. I worry a lot about the siloization of our response effort as a country and, and even within our communities. And the more we can communicate effectively, the more effective we're going to be. The second is collaboration. How can we ensure that the federal government collaborates effectively with those on the ground, doing the daily work. COVID, I think, has presented enormous uh, challenges as we have attempted to collaborate, succeeding in some cases, as Joe noted, with vaccine in particular, but not doing so well in others. And so collaboration is really key. And I'd, I'd really like to drill down on that throughout the day, just to find out just how can we define collaboration more successfully and then implement it. And then the third is resources. We need resources across the board. Uh, equipment, services, uh, budgets are all related to the degree to which those resources can be made available. I think this latest Rescue Act will help us identify uh, and devote resources to where they are needed. The real question is, is it sufficient? But I'd like to drill down on those three things, communication, collaboration, and resources. And I'm very grateful for each of the experts and those first responders who are with us today. I'll turn it back to you, Tom. Well, thank you, Senator, very much. Uh, uh, powerful comments on your part. Uh, we Again, it's a constituency that uh, we take for granted uh, and they're available 24 seven, 365 to your point. And uh, that's why we're focused on this, on them exclusively today. Uh, our once and future and present uh, commissioner, Dr. Donna Shalala, I remember way back when we were working on this, uh, uh, Donna had a keen interest and was one of the leading voices to expand the federal government's uh, not only outreach, but expand resources for first responders. So Donna. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. And thanks to all of my colleagues. I'm delighted to be back on the commission. I don't know of any commission that anticipates the future more than this one and ha has made a real impact on public policy. I wanna associate myself with all of the previous comments and, uh, but particularly, um, in support of first responders. They are extraordinary people across our country um, at every level. Um, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? The musician asks, practice, practice, practice. And in many ways, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about training for the future and anticipating what kind of training will be needed. And then all the practice 
that's built into that. Um, I agree with Tom about the communications, but it's the systems for communications. They often don't gel together. Uh, and uh, the federal government has a response to, has a responsibility to provide resources so that communication systems uh, really work together. That has been a problem for first responders all across the country. And resources, um, I agree that uh, first responders need resources, but not one-shot resources. They need to know that the resources are coming in in a consistent way over a very long period of time so they can plan for all the things that they need to do. So I'm delighted to be with everyone uh, back again uh, with everyone. And thank you again for the invitation. And I look forward to the discussion. Well, welcome back, Donna. We're thrilled to have you with us. And uh, Jim Greenwood, Jim, a couple of thoughts. Thank you, Tom. And I'd like to also welcome Donna back. It's great to have you uh, back with us. When I was a kid, my dad was the president of the Trevos Heights Rescue Squad. And Bucks County, Pennsylvania. It was all volunteer. Um, our neighbors uh, were came together. Um, they they trained. They they practiced. Um, they raised the money. They they took time from their busy jobs to respond over and over again. And uh, uh, I'm sure that half a century later, that's still the way it is in many many places of the in small towns and rural areas of the country. Uh, we have a, a a quite a range. We have big city first responders where they're, they're salaried, they're full-time, they have municipal funds to provide them with their equipment and, and training and so forth. Um, and so we have a complete um, wonderful patchwork of different kinds of uh, first responder units around the country. But what we learned, of course, is that the COVID vaccine, um, the, excuse me, the COVID um, uh, virus is uh, uniform. It uh, had the same effect uh, whether you're in New York City or some small town in, in, in Trevos, Pennsylvania. Um, and that meant that the responders had to respond in, in the same way, with the same kind of equipment. Um, and I think one of the things that we're going to learn today is how we can make sure that there's a uniformity uh, in training and information available uh, to all those first responders, whether they're big city responders or volunteers in small towns. And uh, because they all are going to have to respond to this they all have to respond uniformly to this um, pandemic and they will uh, to future pandemics and uh, God forbid bioterror events. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I think, uh, you know, Pennsylvania is not the only community that relies on a lot of volunteer first responders. It's nationwide in all 50 states. So the point you raise in terms of the, uh, I call it inequitable, but the different distribution in terms of training resources, et cetera, is a really, uh, really an important uh, dimension that we'll deal with hopefully in the conversation we have with the first responders today. Uh, so I appreciate your point of view. Uh, Ken, uh, Ken Weinstein, would you care to uh, conclude uh, uh, remarks uh, for the, uh, from our colleagues and then we'll move into the first panel. Ken? Thanks, Governor. Uh, I'll be brief. Uh, first, I uh, want to join all my colleagues um, and friends in welcoming Donna back. Great to have you and your smiling face back on our screen. Look forward to seeing it in person. Um, also want to uh, register my thanks and our thanks to Lisa for her tremendous service. And um, I was glad to hear what you said, Senator Lieberman, about uh, Lisa getting uh, what seems to be pretty strong bipartisan support, which is obviously a, a pat on the back and an affirmation of the approach that she's taken throughout her career, the you know, national security and country first, um, politics second. But I think it's also sort of reaffirmation of the approach that our group takes. Um, 
completely bipartisan and all about the mission first and politics um, takes a back seat. So uh, good luck to her and uh, we'll look forward to having her in that critical position at DOJ. I guess I just want to um, just to make a very high level remark about uh, or a couple of remarks about first responders. And it, this sort of uh, plays off of what uh, Governor Ridge uh, was saying. I think it was Governor Ridge. We referred to them as heroes. And um, it's funny, that's a term. I had a conversation with a friend just the other day about that, how that's sort of an overused term these days. You hear it applied to everybody under the sun. And, you know, there are people who are clearly heroes, the, you know, combat veterans like Governor Ridge and others who have put their lives on the line for the country, obviously heroes. But when you, I think what we've seen in the COVID crisis is that first responders are heroes by any measure. I mean, uh, see how nurses, doctors, police, fire, first responders of all types have truly put their lives on the line uh, and subjected themselves to real threat um, you know, of, of getting COVID and many have succumbed themselves. But also the grace um, with which they have handled themselves generally throughout this last year has really been remarkable. And it sort of reminded me of what I often take for granted when I deal with medical staff who you know, treat me with such grace and tenderness, how that's, uh, that's an incredible thing to be able to exhibit in a time of such crisis and pressure. So um, I think it's only right that we devote a session to them and only right that we think about the best ways we can help them do their job and do it better and safer. So thanks to Asha and Patricia and the staff for arranging this and looking forward to hearing from our speakers. Thank you, Ken. Thanks to the uh, three of you who, who are on this first panel. You have a very sympathetic audience here, which really uh, wants to learn from you about what uh, the commission can do to better advocate for uh, our first responders. So I'll leave it to that and go uh, to you, the experts. The first is Jennifer Stone, who was president of Partner Forces, uh, which uh, presided over a uh, workshop uh, that uh, we convened a roundtable with first responders uh, about this subject. And um, uh, Jennifer, we welcome you and uh, we look forward to your report uh, on uh, the subject, but also particularly, obviously, on uh, the roundtable discussion. All yours, thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Senator Lieberman and commissioners. And thank you, Dr. George, for inviting me to participate in today's public meeting. I appreciate the opportunity to share my perspective and applaud the commission's work to support first responders on the front lines of biodefense. I also wanna take a moment to thank our first responders, some here with us today, for the role they are playing in our ongoing response to COVID and for the role they play every day in keeping our communities safe. To introduce myself, my name is Jennifer Stone and I'm the president and founder of Partner Forces. I've had the honor of working side by side with the Department of Homeland Security for 18 years, supporting federal, state and local critical infrastructure initiatives and building all hazards preparedness and resilience capabilities. Currently, my team is supporting ongoing COVID response efforts at both DHS and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Today, I'm excited to discuss threat awareness and information sharing during biological events. But first, I'd like to start by highlighting the effort we recently conducted on behalf of the commission. This past October, as you know, my team partnered with the commission to conduct the roundtable for first responders 
from across the country to gain insight into the first responder information needs when faced with a bio threat. First responders joined us from different disciplines and regions across the country in order to identify the types of information the first responder community needs to make operational decisions related to biological threats as well as vaccine safety. During the roundtable, we worked through live scenarios of how we would manage three different biological threats, namely COVID-19, smallpox, and ricin. Through the scenarios, we simulated the different bio-threat circumstances in order to discuss and learn how we may coordinate response efforts. Coming away from the roundtable, a few critical items stood out in terms of how our government can best support first responders as it relates to threat awareness and information sharing in and around a bio-threat or bio-event. First, reducing the complexity of government to stakeholders. We must make government more legible and accessible, and we must make it easier for organizations, including first responders, to find, understand, and use the information, services, and programs the government has to offer. The onus should not be on first responders to learn and understand the complexities of government to obtain information. We must continue to work hard to reduce these and other administrative burdens to ensure that first responders have what they need at their fingertips during a live event when they are in fact in response mode. Second, we must bolster the credibility of federal institutions in our country. This is not just about COVID. I expect there to be ongoing misinformation and disinformation challenges originating from within and outside of our country. In fact, this may be one of the greatest challenges of our time. The spread of misinformation and disinformation will continue to complicate the government's ability to effectively communicate risk to our citizens. As a result, we can expect it to be difficult to get many of our citizens to take action to protect themselves or our nation as a whole during the times we need collective action most. In the case of bio threats, we must increase confidence levels in our institutions to ensure maximum effectiveness of first responders and their work within communities. Third, first responders are not monolithic. There have been reports that some first responders have been reluctant to get the COVID vaccine. First responders are drawn from our community, communities and thus reflect society's divergent viewpoints on vaccines. They are not immune to the same debates we are all having within our own families and communities. It is important that first responders are protected and supported by having access to robust and personalized information about vaccines, both the safety and efficacy to protect their own lives and the lives of others. To conclude, I wanna pause a moment to reflect on what many of us as Homeland Security professionals have had on our minds over the last year. While COVID has proven to be a devastating event, it has also provided a case study on bio-threat preparedness and thus an opportunity for us to learn how we can be better prepared and more resilient in the future. I remember when the department was conduct conducting risk modeling after 9-11 and the consequence factor that was most difficult to model and measure was the psychological impact of an attack or an event. Our experience with COVID will provide social scientists and policymakers with a lot of new material to study and inform that part of our risk equation. This line of study is important if we want to develop better mitigation measures against future bio threats. Finally, in addition to revisiting our risk model, we must discuss the role of the Department of Homeland Security in preparedness and response to future bio threats, whether man-made or naturally occurring. Better understanding this role is critical <coughs> to addressing the recommendations that came out of the first responder roundtable 
around threat and information sharing and other topics that are part of today's discussion. Thank you, and I look forward to today's dialogue and answering your questions. Thanks, Jennifer. That was uh, really a great uh, beginning to this um, meeting. Next, we have Mike Senna, uh, president of the National Fusion Center Association, executive director of the Northern California High-Intensity Drug Trafficking, Trafficking Area and Northern California Regional Intelligence Center. Mike, thanks for being here. You bring a lot of really uh, uh, ground-level experience, which matters to us, so it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Lieberman. And uh, thank you to members of the commission. Really appreciate your time today and uh, especially allowing us the ability to talk a little bit about the homeland security issues and the threats that we've been facing for many years. And former Secretary Ridge, I always appreciate the uh, support and help that we've had uh, from the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, some of the things that we've been doing um, since we started, and obviously we, we were brought about because of the tragedy of 9-11, lack of information sharing and the, the need to connect federal, state, local, tribal, territorial, and private sector partners. Now, as we expanded our capabilities, and today we're at 80 fusion centers across the nation. We have 50 state centers, we have 27 major urban areas, and we also have three territories that have fusion centers. Part of our makeup has always been the concept that we need to bring in multi multidisciplinary partners, um, partners from fire, partners from EMS, partners from public health. Uh, back in 2011, um, the Criminal Intelligence Coordinating Council, which is a, uh, under the FACA of the Global Advisory Committee under USDOJ, um, developed some guidance on reaching out and coordinating with public health. Uh, but today, when we look at the threats that we're seeing, especially uh, as it relates to COVID, um, which you know, I, I agree with our, our last uh, presenter, is that you know, this is a model for how do we do things better in the world of public health? Um, how do we identify those threats? And that's the role of the Fusion Center, identify the incoming threats before they happen, help us prepare for them, help us get that information to those first responders out there on the ground so that they can better um, handle the threat, better prepare for the threat and prevent the threat, whatever that threat may be, whether it's a terrorist actor, mass casualty event, domestic violent extremist, or a virus that impacts our society. Now, after September 11th, we move very quickly to move resources into place. Um, after the death of 3,000 Americans, one of our most tragic attacks on, on, in American history on our land, um, we move quickly to bring together law enforcement, firefighters, uh, even EMS. But public health has been one of those things that has been challenging for us. Um, bringing public health analysts, bringing public health officers into every fusion center has not happened yet. Um, despite that guidance in 2011, those connections have not been made. And when the events occurred with COVID-19, that was something that drove every fusion center into engagement, um, how to collect the information, how to process the information, how to protect privacy, civil rights and civil liberties, how to identify those indicators where there's trends or there's outbreaks, um, how to map that information out with uh, geospatial data. Geospatial analysis is a huge part of what we do. And so developing that capability was something that every fusion center had to basically develop uh, from scratch in many cases. Um, but part of our job is building those relationships and working closely with CDCR, with state public health officials, local public health officials to gather and collect data. Um, but without those public health analysts, without those public health officers, that limited capabilities. And a number of our fusion centers across the country started developing products to push out to first responders, getting that information out there in real time, connecting to those databases that identified 
um, hospitals and, and the, the bed capacity. And um, I have a long so being able to push that information out quickly became a mission of the fusion centers. But that's not something that we should end just because COVID, uh, there's a vaccine available and that, that, that may hopefully we may, may be past that. The problem I foresee is that we will have future threats that are coming to us and having the ability to have that geospatial data. And to highlight a program from my HIDA role as a high intensity drug trafficking area director, um, years ago, the Washington Baltimore HIDA um, in partnership with Esri developed a tool called ODMAP, an overdose mapping tool to map out um, suspected um, opioid overdoses, but now all suspected overdoses and map that out throughout the country. The problem with these projects is adoption and use of the technology and people willing to share their data. Um, there are no mandates that people share data. Um, trying to bring consensus and community together without some guidance, without some encouragement through grants. And fusion centers themselves are funded through, uh, in large part, uh, over a quarter of their funding is through federal grant dollars. Um, the rest, a good majority of over 65% is state, local, tribal, private sector partners uh, providing resources. But without the funding resources to one, bring people in the same place together, which is the purpose of fusion centers. And secondly, that funding resources to drive people to share data, to drive people to understand that we will protect their data and to get that data to people in real time without those things in place, we'll continue to be hindered in our ability to identify the next threat ahead of us. Um, and, and I foresee that being our biggest challenge is that this is a wake up call and over half a million people that have you know, died because of it, um, what will the next tragedy be? And that is really the role and focus of fusion centers is to help collect that information, collect that partnership, uh, build those relationships with everyone out there in the community between those federal, state, local, tribal, territorial, and private sector partners to be able to provide them with a true picture of the threat. And that's in partnership with all the other organizations we work with, with CDC, with uh, the state public health officers, the local public health officers, but not only for us to take information from them, to, but be also to be able to share information with them. So one of the things that we also would like to, you know, have for the discussion is, you know, what type of legislation would encourage um, that sharing and trust of information? Um, there's oftentimes everyone brings up uh, HIPAA and other statutes that um, may hinder the ability for us to share data. And we need to get past that idea that there are all these prohibitions against sharing data and find out how we can legally do it and how we can do it in real time. Uh, waiting for lawyers and attorneys to review the sharing of data weeks to months later does us no good. We have to have real-time data sharing. We have to have protocols in place and we have to have people feel that they're safe with that sharing of data and also safe in consuming data that they receive from their fusion centers. And currently right now, um, based on 50 states and multiple territories and their legal statutes on the protection of information, um, we have no ability to say, we, we have 100% you know, guarantee that we're gonna be able to protect your data in every fifth of the 50 states. Um, depending on which state you're in, depending on how information is shared, um, that data may be uh, exposed to the public. And in many cases, um, there are concerns about how that's done. And that's one of the things that hinders our information sharing environment that we're trying to create is that protection of the information that we're creating, developing the analysis that we put into it. Um, but at the forefront of this and the, and the way we need to move forward is we have to have the dedicated resources, the dedicated relationships with those public health professionals. Um, and that needs to be a priority um, in my mind 
um, from all legislative bodies within the country is how do we make that possible? How do we get the resources in those centers to be able to create a balanced environment where we have that true multidisciplinary environment and the information sharing capability between the fusion centers, between law enforcement, public health, and our private sector partners. So I appreciate your time today and look forward to your questions. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Mike. That was, uh, that was really uh, very helpful uh, because it, uh, it's the kind of information that we could only get an opinion really uh, from somebody who's been on the front line. So thanks a lot. And, and the same I'm sure will be true of the last uh, uh, participant, uh, I hesitate to use the word witness, expert on this panel, uh, Shemaine Benford, who is the uh, chief of emergency management uh, of, the, of the great city of Boston. So uh, one of the uh, virtues of these virtual meetings uh, is um, notwithstanding their, their shortcomings, it does allow us to go rapidly from coast to coast west to east without uh, having to uh, put you on a plane to get to us. Anyway, uh, Shumain, welcome, and uh, we look forward to your uh, remarks. Senator, good morning. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate uh, your very kind and gracious words uh, and introduce me, and uh, I would like to thank the uh, other commissioners as well as Dr. George uh, and Robert Bradley for the opportunity to come and share some information. Um, I, I do hope uh, today to provide uh, some brief comments and some reflection, particularly from the local level. Um, and I, I do um, immediately put on the table that, uh, you know, I want to resist the urge to use uh, COVID-19 as the lens uh, to, to view everything uh, that we move forward on. But I think the lessons learned uh, are just too compelling uh, not to consider it. Um, I know at the local level for us, um, it has really caused us to look at literally every system, every practice, and every standardized structural mechanism that we have to respond uh, to large-scale crisis and events. Um, that's how impactful it was. Um, in my current role, uh, as the Senator mentioned, I'm the Chief of Emergency Management for the City of Boston. And um, I hope to, again, provide just some local flavor um, in some of the thinking uh, and some of the challenges and lessons learned uh, that we had in responding to the uh, COVID-19. And one of the first things I put on the table uh, is when we think about first responders, uh, particularly at the operational level, it, it, you know, it's really in, in a couple of buckets that we've really processed this information through is, A, a what is the threat? Uh, how do we interpret it? Um, and what's the intelligence telling us? Um, and it's helpful. Um, it's extremely helpful um, on the front end when we're talking about preventing, uh, preventing uh, any type of, uh, you know, any type of action. However, um, it becomes much more of a challenge when you have to make it actionable. And at the operational level, um, and particularly at the local level, it's all about constituent services. This is where the rubber hits the road in terms of all of the coordinating work with our federal and state partners uh, comes to bear, comes to fruition as it, re as it relates to services being rendered uh, to residents. Um, in the city of Boston, what we found um, when we talk about first responders, um, and I think um, to a large degree, uh, the debate uh, continues on today, um, first responders versus essential workers. Um, and right, and I think that um, we, as we look at first responders, it's, it's unquestionable, right? The call is gonna come in, there's going to need to be an immediate response. Um, but to Mike's point uh, and Jenna's point uh, through their comments, we start to think about 
what are the other agencies and what are the other implications that are going to come behind it? And I'll be quite honest with you, it wasn't until I did some work in public health um, that I realized how intricate a role they play um, in the long-term viability and response for our communities. Um, and I agree with Mike. Um, I think when we look at operationally how things played out, um, I think the, the natural bureaucracies uh, certainly uh, read their heads. Um, and started to get in the way when we think about HHS on, you know, whatever it may be referred to at the local and state levels across the country. Um, but they were and continue to be the lead agency uh, in this particular area as the subject matter experts. But when we think about the functional side of um, how they go about delivering their services, um, it's a little less operational than first responders. So it becomes, how do we, as Mike talked about, how do we better incorporate public health into the discussion when we start to talk about biological threats and other threats um, that come through uh, human physical services? So it is, it is imperative uh, that we find a way to better integrate the, those, uh, those disciplines into the conversation. Um, I think uh, some help um, around, again, interpret, interpreting what that data uh, suggest and how it manifests itself and how we can share information. So as Mike said, when you talk about HIPAA and things like that, there's always that natural barrier at the planning table when you're talking, uh, you know, working across lawyers and working across buyers on how much information can we share? Who can share it? Who is privy to it? Uh, so, I, you know, we, we encountered challenges where people sitting at the table based on true and strict interpretation of the law may not have been eligible to receive that information. So I do believe that there are a lot of lessons learned uh, and some work that we still have to do in that area. One of the other lessons that we learned um, is the flexibility. Uh, we have to ensure that as we get this intelligence, again, just thinking at the local level, that all of the resources that Mike talked about that supports uh, fusion centers overwhelmingly uh, you know, supported by uh, federal grant money in particular and, and, and other resources. How do we go about thinking about costs that are gonna be reimbursable? How do we help smaller jurisdictions about that early thinking? Some of these rules and some of these processes are extremely disciplined and detailed in what's needed. And quite honestly, I'm not sure, and I don't, and I respectfully suggest this, that um, some of our more, uh, you know, smaller jurisdictions across the country may not have the resources, may not have the capacity to be able to truly respond. And when we think about the after effects of these responses to these large-scale large, large scale instances, they could be catastrophic for small jurisdictions. So lessons learned there. Um, for all on the call uh, can see, I, I am a black male, right? Um, and we know that uh, we've had some social discussion over the course of the last nine months to a year that has really challenged all uh, of our governmental and our formal institutions. And how do we think about uh, how we interact with different communities that have historical mistrust uh, in government services and police services when we're delivering you know, something as simple and as nondescript in terms of confrontation as public health? Um, even that becomes a barrier when you have some of these communities that have very strong and challenged our relationships with government service. Um, with regards to the city of Boston in when we think about our next steps uh, in, in, in terms of how we proceed, I think that we are very fortunate where we have done a much better job. Our brick, uh, which is uh, you know our local terminology for our fusion center, does an enormous job with intelligence uh, and getting that intelligence out and presenting in it, presenting it in a way in which it uh, can be interpreted. However. We have found uh, when we look at FEMA and we look at the you know new national uh, you know priority areas around investment uh, and uh, you know in elections and things like that, 
these are areas that have not historically operated in that public uh, that public safety space. How do we have broader conversation? How do we bring those stakeholders in to help us think about how uh, how we respond to it? In in think about a biological threat, and there are so many different variables that do come into play. Uh, we think about in, in Boston, we're having, uh, you know, we have a mayoral race uh, that is going to be coming up, and there was a conversation um, around delaying the special election because of the implications of having multiple elections while we're still responding to a pandemic. So, through, you know, through traditional lenses, we don't think about those things, but they're very real and how we have to think today. So um, I do apologize uh, for being lengthy on it, but I did want to give uh, some context, particularly in some of the areas where we have not thought about um, and have not been uh, viewed through the traditional lens. I think in closing, uh, as we look at the pandemic response, I believe that it has given us a tremendous opportunity to turn all of our thinking on top of its head because we really do have to uh, rethink how we go about having some of these conversations to truly be uh, resilient and in a capacity to respond. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Shemaine. Uh, you were not uh, too long at all. By Washington standards, you were right. <laughs> so it was excellent testimony. Uh, Governor Ridge, you want to start the questioning and then I'll follow you. Yeah, thank you very much, Senator. Uh, very impressive uh, panel. Uh, but I must tell you, I feel like I'm back in uh, 2001 when my first responders were saying we didn't get the timely and accurate information we needed in order to do our job. And here we're 20 years later. So I need to drill down on uh, the comments that all three of you made with regard to the complexity of information, the dis and misinformation, the absence of information to get a better handle on precisely the concern that you've expressed. And it is also included in the final observations of the Ms. Stone's report about the kind of information you are lacking in order for the first responder community to do the kind of job that it felt it needed to do. Now, I know there were mixed signals from CDC, got it. Uh, maybe you got missed signals from FEMA and frankly, I'm just not a, maybe it's a, because of my age. If it's on social media, I, 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 it's tough to accept it as real uh, because you can't, you got anonymous sources and God only knows uh, we can't hold them accountable and you got a little misinformation and disinformation. So if the three of you would just, I don't mean to be, I need to understand more completely at a granular level, 20 years after first responders saying, we're still not getting the kind of information we need Tell me, what did you need and why don't you think, and why didn't you get it? And if there's a log jam someplace, would you please tell me where it is? What did you need to know and why didn't you get it? Thank you. I just, I'm astonished at this conversation. So I'll talk, ladies first, Ms. Stone. Well, I, I feel like I should defer to the uh, folks on the call that are you know, at the tactical level. But I will say that um, I echo your sentiment, um, um, Governor Ridge, about feeling like we're going back in some ways. These are some of the same challenges we've been tackling for a long time. Um, I will say that um, 
in the testimony, in, in the roundtable session, um, I was really surprised that the Department of Homeland Security did not come up as a source of guidance or information. I don't think it was mentioned at all. Yeah, you mentioned and, it in your report. I couldn't believe it. I, I was shocked. And so, um, you know, there was a structure set up after 9-11 and there was an emergency services sector established. And if you read about what that sector should have been doing, it serves as a day-to-day -day federal interface for the dynamic prioritization, collaboration, and coordination of sector activities. It carries out incident management responsibilities and it provides support and facilitates te technical assistance and consultations with the sector to identify risk issues. And so when I think about information sharing, the first thing I think of is, did the ESS have, and did it sponsor information collection requirements that the sector needed, the, the fire, the EMS, the police, is was there initiative that then they could then provide those requirements maybe through the Fusion Center folks and INA to make sure that, okay, guys, we need to have a standard set of collection uh, requirements around this um, across our fusion centers. So, you know, that's one thing that the ESS sector could have provided and done. Um, I think they're underfunded. I work alongside parts of them in my job. So I want to be very cautious about saying what I know and what I don't know. Um, but I, but I think that that structure, um, if you all remember, obviously last year, the, the elections effort, the campaign that CISA coordinated across the government was done through that sector specific agency. It can be a powerful tool. That was the tool that brought those um, um, secretaries of state together. And you know, despite what social media says, that was a success. So I know that the structure itself can be used for good. And so that to me is what I would share to you, something that is an immediate thing that I would want to inquire further around. Thank you. Mike? Well, sir, as a person that's been uh, at this business uh, since you started in this business as well with Homeland Security, uh, it's frustrating. Um, you know, our, our national network of fusion centers is only as strong as the membership that uh, are incorporated into it. And throughout the network, we lack those public health officers and analysts. Um, but beyond that, it's also that access to data. And you said the granular level of data, um, those systems and that connectivity doesn't exist state to state um, to all the data that we need for those precursors for incidents if there is a pandemic or something that appears that it may become a pandemic. And, and that ultimately is you know, where we falter is because you know, oftentimes we're dealing with uh, many attorneys that make many reasons why we can't share certain aspects of data and certain pieces of information. And it's very frustrating to me because, you know, we, we are a fusion center. Our goal is to bring data together and without that feed. Uh, and, and I mentioned the HIDA program and the OD map piece where, you know, that has been deployed across the country to be a, a first responders indicator and also to in incorporate into computer-aided dispatch systems to pull in data to show where an overdose has occurred. I can't do the same thing with uh, other public health issues. And it's very frustrating to me to, and even with that uh, OD map deployment, um, it has not been adopted in every state in the country. So we're getting snippets of pieces just on the overdoses throughout the country, but we need also those public health indicators and that capability, um, along with that whole discussion of suspicious activity reporting. 
that's our reporting. Um, how do we get when a, you know, someone reports to CDC and, and believe me, that methodology of reporting has not been the best over the last 20 years. Um, how data gets from hospitals to CDC as far as indicators. So we're dealing with a, a oftentimes very delayed system. And by the, it's, it's almost, I equate it to, there's a bomb that's in a car, it's going to a location and we get to know about it three weeks later um, after the bomb has gone off. That's kind of the way we deal with public health, but it's not just public health. We deal with that sometimes in the cyber realm as well. But, you know, unfortunately, because people aren't seeing bodies on the street, um, they only hear numbers. It does not equate to a crisis in many people's minds, which is unfortunate. Um, we have people that are dying from this issue today. There will be other issues in the future. And without the ability to, to implement this data collection capability, without the ability to have that information going to fusion centers and to analysts that can put uh, that information together with local context. And that's really why, you know, state and local governments built fusion centers in the first place with the support of the federal government. Um, we're not gonna be able to deal with this threat in the future. And we struggle with it today. Yeah. Quick uh, follow-up, then I wanna talk to uh, Mr. Benford to respond. Are the, is the public health community and first responders adequately represented in the 56 fusion centers or they just a, uh, they receive the information, but they're not part of the fusion center at large. Are, are you, the 56 fusion centers to have a public health expert and a uh, representative from the first responder community in, within? Well, within the 80 fusion centers that are out there now, um, we do not have public health representation in every center in the country. And I have to say that I actually did a query when, uh, you know, CDC said, hey, we want to, you know, build a stronger relationship on those centers that have data collection capabilities or disseminating information uh, to their partners that they are building. Um, we only had a quarter of the centers that uh, responded that they were in a position to have that relationship with CDC. Thank you. Mr. Benford? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, very briefly, uh, certainly piggybacking, uh, uh, piggybacking on the back of uh, Jennifer and Mike and their comments. I would just add... Um, to, we can't minimize the size, the scope, and the construct of the federal government. It's just a natural, very large bureaucracy to have to work through. And having some level of um, some level of directive that forces that information uh, into those channels would be extremely helpful. And um, I, I, I talk about I talked earlier about the bureaucracies and, and, and these barriers, right? So we know that. Um, in public safety, very strong discipline, uh, very strong barriers that are put up on both sides. We do a much better job today. However, when we look at fusion centers, it's about data. And it's probably one of those critical areas where disciplines come together to look at data that is actionable by a multitude of different disciplines. So if we can talk you know, and think through that lens as uh, Jennifer talked about tools and uh, pushing that information through these fusion centers to the subject matter experts that understand how to analyze this data and able to pump it out in a way uh, that is presented almost at a layman's level so that those that are doing the functional work could appreciate it, that would be extremely helpful. And I'll just give one practical example. If we all take a look um, at PPE uh, a year ago uh, versus where we're at today and we think about public safety, um, right, the, you know, the, the core response I know here in Boston was around secure, uh, secure PPE, secure PPE, secure PPE, and it was largely around getting it to public safety because we knew we had to maintain those core services. 
Well, if we look at those challenges around resourcing and getting that PPE and then in the information that officers and firefighters have then versus now, you can take the numbers in the usage of PPE and see a drastic drop off because you have particularly, you, you have officers and firefighters ripping N95 mask off after every interaction. Um, that could have been helpful data that was vetted through an appropriate body where public health was a partner in it and we were getting candid information in those seeds of distrust that have been in place for years and years and years um, from public, uh, public safety, not trust in public health, uh, we could have potentially broken through that and maybe had some gains. So just a small example on a lesson uh, that, that may be able to help capture it. Thank you, Senator. I, I, I got plenty more, but these the panelists did a great job responding to my inquiry. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tom. So, um, I'll go back to uh, 2014 when our commission uh, began its work. And uh, we issued our first uh, foundation report in 2015. Um, uh, to look back and say we, we were prophetic, it doesn't really come us, so our professional staff and the experts we heard from, because we said there's no question a, a great probability an infectious disease outbreak, epidemic, pandemic is coming and we're not ready for it. Our country is not ready for it. And one of the things we focused on particularly uh, was the um, unreadiness, if I can put it that way, of our public health systems. So I'm really struck by the testimony uh, that you've offered this morning about how much you have found that to be so, I'm, I'm not surprised, but it is, it really points a way forward because again, according to all the experts, um, you know, another infectious disease outbreak epidemic or even pandemic is coming in our future. And one of the lessons learned, I think is, has to be, um, what do we do to get uh, to better, to improve our public health systems and also uh, based on your excellent uh, testimony this morning, integrate them with the other systems. So um, maybe I'll begin with Mike, because you really focused on this. Um, what, uh, and ask first, what, what should the federal government do to facilitate the, uh, the, the interaction of, of the fusion centers with public health and, um, uh, what uh, what are, will you do regardless of what the federal or what will the fusion centers do regardless of whether the federal government acts to, to close that gap that you found existed uh, in response to COVID-19? Yeah, at the front of this, I mean, in, especially dealing with uh, public health issues, we have to have HHS and we have to have CDC on the same page with uh, the National Network of Fusion Centers and with our partners at DHS um, and FBI and, and other components that we have within the federal government. Um, right now, that's not cohesive at all as far as you know our relationship and all the partners' relationship because you know it's one of those things that if you don't work together, if you don't drill together, if you don't uh, have conversations on a regular basis, when a when a disaster happens, you're not going to be prepared. And those, I believe, is the the foundation that we have to come up with a strategy, some type of plan that describes how this will work today and how it will work tomorrow. And not just a plan that sits on a shelf, because we've seen way too many of those, but a plan that requires um, some type of metrics 
for how we accomplish this goal of situational awareness of threats, of um, analysis of threats, and of sharing and production of joint products. I think that's a key point is that without, you know, basically pushing people to work together to develop a product, um, even if it's every year, um, then they won't work together uh, otherwise in many cases. So we've got to drive them to do that. The other part of that uh, goes along with the funding resources to bring those people together. Um, you know, we can't do these projects without uh, at least some funding to make it happen. Um, and that includes the funding for those personnel that uh, should be working in fusion centers. We, we really need full-time public health um, and analyst public health um, officers uh, working in a fusion center, co-located. But we don't need them sitting in the corner, isolated from everybody and not able to share information with them. It's got to be a two-way street. And we've got to get past the barriers, the legal barriers that oftentimes come up, uh, whether real or not, uh, or perceived barriers uh, of the laws that uh, don't allow us to share data. We need laws that say you must share data. We need laws that say you will share data. Um, otherwise, uh, we will come up to these issues that continue to plague us when we start talking about we have a, a public health emergency. Years ago, we had the issue with Ebola in the United States. And we had folks that were coming into the United States, going to their homes and trying to share that information with law enforcement to say there is a person with suspected Ebola uh, that is being quarantined and, he's, and they're at this location. Trying to share that information with law enforcement became quite a challenge. Um, we should not have those challenges. And I'm not to, I couldn't say that that challenge isn't going to happen again tomorrow if we have another severe contagious disease that comes in the country that we are hindered from sharing information. In those cases, they basically had to get a court order to allow them to share the information with first responders about that location. So I think that there's a lot of things that we need to do on the legislative side, and there's a lot of things on the policy side. And what we're going to try to do is continue to build relationships on our own with CDC and Health and Human Services, because we have to. We, we, I often say that we can't wait for the federal government to solve our problems. We've got to do it ourselves, because if we leave it to... Uh, people that own devices, it will never happen. So we will continue to, to have those discussions. We'll continue to talk about how do we do joint production, but without the backing of the federal government, it's often a, a hard task without that support. Okay, so I, I hear you, and I think it's a compelling argument about the, the necessary role of the federal government. Perhaps our commission uh, can play a role in advocating that. Take a minute uh, and tell us, have the have the individual fusion centers or the National Fusion Center Association already begun to try to involve uh, public health uh, officers in your work as a result of uh, your uh, experience with COVID-19? We have, and, and we had a number of fusion centers right off the bat that were able to build capacity. And so when uh, over that time period of the last year, We've had a number of calls where we brought fusion centers together to talk about these are best practices, share products. This is what people have done. We had one center that had only a handful of people that were dedicated to this project, and they were doing a daily bulletin briefing that was going out to every agency in their state. Um, that's the type of thing that we set as great examples for our partners. We set up calls with CDC and talked about how do we share information? How do we share geospatial information in real time? How do you develop in our own websites in each fusion center, a visual display of what's going on uh, throughout the country, our region. We leveraged all the work that others have done, including John Hopkins and some of the other major um, groups out there that were doing data collection, doing data display. 
And we started integrating that in many areas across the country as a place and resource page where our first responders could go to. So that's kind of what we've done over the last year is developing products and, and mechanisms to share information in real time. Good for you. Thank you for that. Uh, Chief Benford, what, what's your perspective from uh, emergency management in Boston on the, uh, uh, how, how to better integrate the public health system with emergency management? Yeah, I think Mike uh, captured very well uh, in terms of the major perspectives uh, that would uh, that should and need to be considered um, with regards to improving that. Uh, I would add, um, you know, in support of Mike's comments with regards to uh, what's happening at the local level, um, as he said, we have to do it. Um, you know, the pandemic has forced boots on the ground to work across disciplines uh, to get access to the information, uh, again, in service to our communities. When we think about um, uh, former Secretary uh, Pete Gaynor, uh, you know, he talked about when we talked about the uh, FEMA's response to that, I believe in no hope to it, but it was federally funded, state managed, locally executed. Um, and that becomes a little more challenging uh, when we have these information, uh, the, these information sharing barriers. Um, I can remember practically several examples um, where we were talking about in, in, in the challenge, many of the challenges that we face when we think about first responders is the one common denominator that binds them all together is public safety. And in many instances, that has also been some of the same authorities that have, uh, for lack of a better word, have gotten us in trouble over the years because we fall back on public safety in making these very hard decisions um, on the back of public safety. However, if we had greater channels where we, uh, we were able to share information, uh, it could, uh, create greater pathways for responses. And I just think of uh, a conversation I had many, uh, many years ago with a public health professional um, around drug interdiction work that was going on. There was such a barrier between law enforcement and public health, it was palpable. And I remember the public health official actually asking me, uh, well, could you actually ask the officers to give us a courtesy call when they're gonna do drug uh, vice work in the area? And I just looked and I said, do you understand their mandate? And, and do you understand what you just asked? Um, but they were thinking through the lens of public health, through the lens of addiction treatment, uh, through the, the countless uh, opportunities that you have to provide those individuals that are battling those addictions. And I do believe that it was a two-way street where law enforcement could have learned from their perspective, but also uh, public health could have understood the sheer challenges that public, uh, that public safety face in trying to support even their communities, only to have HIPAA cited consistently uh, in many of these conversations. So I think Mike is dead on when we talk about uh, legislatively, uh, policy-wise, uh, being able to provide some clarification on when and how and when the directive is to public health, you have to share this information uh, on the back of, uh, you know, public safety and public health on behalf of those uh, that, that are most in need. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer Stone, finally, do you add anything to this? I think uh, the, the need to facilitate uh, uh, sharing of data is, is very compelling as described today. Uh, generally speaking on the subject of uh, uh, better integrating uh, public health systems into uh, our preparedness uh, uh, for uh, the next pandemic, whenever it comes, um, what, what do you have to bring uh, to us from those discussions at the round table? 
Um, thank you. And I don't know if these are directly related to the roundtable discussions. Um, some of it is just my perspective. Sure. Um, I think that um, we at the federal level need to create space to make this a priority. Um, I think that right now, you know, we face and the state and locals face the broadest, widest threat and risk landscape we've probably ever faced in our country. Um, and we go back to the same troughs of money to fund uh, preparedness and resilience against those threats and risks. I also know that organizations like CISA and FEMA, you know, my clients and, and those that I, I work closely with have a lot to juggle on a daily basis. Um, and so, um, I think that it's really important that, and I know by working with them, how they set priorities. And oftentimes that's what is Congress and what is the White House telling us to prioritize? Um, and so I think that we need specific guidance relative to doing and integrating and, and, and building in and, and revisiting public health. I do know that there was a time after 9-11 when we did have pandemic planning and it was more robust, but quite honestly, with the specter of cyber and the cyber threats on the horizon and just building, I feel like that has kind of um, taken up such a big space in the department and in these areas where we would be doing um, bio threat planning and pandemic planning um, that it's maybe a little off balance um, or we just need to add, add resources to allow, allow these government agencies to focus on that. So I would say that um, it's a big thing. The other thing that I would add, and I don't know if Mike would agree with me, is that, you know, we always joke, and I think it's partly true, that you've met one fusion center. If you meet one fusion center, you've met one fusion center. And there still is a lack of standardization uh, of what to expect when you engage a fusion center. I'm in Austin, Texas, um, so I can speak to the experiences of the Texas fusion centers, and they all have incredible capabilities, but they're all different. So if the federal government is going to, in fact, rely on fusion centers to be the, you know, in this case, a key um, receiver and communicator of bio threat related information, then we're going to have to know that exists in that fusion center and across all fusion centers, right? We need to know that's the button we press. So I wonder if it's not time to revisit the standardization of some of those information care um, capabilities and expertise areas that reside in the fusion centers, because I also see on the horizon a lot of emerging technology and threats related to technology, whether it's UAS, whether it's autonomous vehicles, where we're going to need subject matter experts at the local level that are going to be able to take the complicated information that we gen out the federal government and translate that into actionable information um, at the state and local level. Uh, thanks to uh, all of you. You've been really helpful. I, I can tell you, I certainly have learned a lot from you. And Hopefully we can uh, help implement what you've taught us. Senator Dashiell. Thank you, Joe. I, I uh, like you and Tom, I just really appreciate the extraordinary testimony and uh, insights that our panelists have shared with us this morning. Just uh, really outstanding. I, uh, I, uh, I, I share your dismay, my colleagues' dismay at uh, what little progress we've made since uh, uh, since many of us have experienced uh, uh, the 9-11 uh, challenges, uh, the anthrax challenges that we faced in the Senate in 2001, it's really remarkable that we're having conversations that we could have had 20 years ago. 
I, I, in my earlier comments, I, I talked about how critical it was for us to focus on communication, collaboration, and, and resources. And I, Jennifer, in particular, I want to thank you for your report and the work that you've done with the roundtable. And I, I, I just I worry a great deal about the lack of that communication. A, a good example is CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Uh, as I understand it right now, is considering guidelines for the use of new and safer smallpox vaccines, which certainly has implications for first responders, but it's really unclear to me how much, if at all, they're thinking about first responder uh, community needs as they as they participate in their deliberation. So, and, and I, Jennifer, I really appreciated your three recommendations. I would just ask, uh, based on your conversations in that roundtable and how you have uh, kind of uh, interacted already with, with the roundtable uh, participants and, and others, how would you make government uh, agencies more usable? Could we drill down on that first recommendation a little bit? Could you expand on that? Yeah. Share your thoughts on what you mean yeah. more usable? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll use a story um, from the pandemic um, as an example. Um, in October, when we held the, the round table, um, I, I heard that there was still an issue with PPE, right? There was still an ongoing issue with PPE. At the exact same time, I knew that CARES Act had a whole big line item for channeling PPE to first responders, and that FEMA was the group that was charged with that. And in fact, that they were having kind of a hard time spending those dollars. And so that was a big in my face disconnect and really made me realize that to, I think it was Mike's point, I, you know, you know, we need to reduce that administrative burden. And I know FEMA tried to um, reduce administrative burdens like they, you know, this is very tactical, but on the it, you know bits and pieces of information you had to provide to be able to be eligible for some of the grant funding that would allow you to buy PPE. They did reduce some of the, but it's not enough, right? It's not enough. Um, I, I So between the administrative burden of getting access in the middle of a response, right? When you're a firefighter and you, you don't sit at a computer all day, right? You're out and about and doing things and, and operational that was one piece that was surprising to me um, that I think, um, I think that was the most support, surprising thing from the roundtable because I knew that on the federal side, we were working hard to get and push out dollars and there was, a, there was a disconnect. And then I also think that, and this is directly from the roundtable, roundtables, like there's just so much information coming from them from all sides and angles. And it's sometimes even contradictory. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's unique to COVID because we, we have to admit that COVID was new and, you know, there, there was all the communication even around the masks that was confusing to the public and to all of us, right? We're up front, it was, we're telling people not to use a mask and then now we are. So I don't know if it, this, this con con conflicting, sometimes contradictory information, it was unique to COVID or would that be similar across threats? I have to think that maybe some of the um, threats that we've seen already, like anthrax, um, we might have better, more consistent information to share. Um, as far as solving those problems, I think before we start building new structures and new authorities, I think we need to look at, did we follow the processes and frameworks that we had in place? 
you know, really do that hard work of here's the way in a perfect scenario based on the authorities, the structures, um, the stakeholder engagement groups, you know, the way we engage stakeholders, we have it set up, did we follow that? Before we start then adding in layers on top of that, that could create even a more Frankenstein system. Um, and so I, I, I don't know personally if that work is being done. Um, I do think it probably needs to be led at the White House level um, to be able to really do a thorough job. So hope, hopefully that's helpful. Very helpful. Thank you. I, I have tons of questions. Let me just limit myself to one more. And I'd ask each of the panelists this based partly on what Jennifer just said. If there is one thing we should do about improving collaboration and communication, that one thing, it, it sounds like Mike Senna would say data sharing, but let me just not put words in anybody's mouth. If there's one thing you could do to improve collaboration and communication, what would it be? And how, uh, the second part of the question is when we talk about resources, is it that we need more resources or resources used to better purpose? I agree that there, there are a lot of resources in government that uh, uh, could be better directed to the threat. Um, and I would say that, you know, uh, data is, is only a piece of this. It's relationships and building relationships that stand the test of time. Because if the relationships are built, the confidence is there, the data will be shared. But how do we do that? How do we bring people together to build a relationship? And like anything we do, we have to give people a task. We've got to give them something to do that forces them to work together so that they will accomplish a report so that they will accomplish this data sharing goals. But we have to set up the capability and capacity. Now, could Fusion Centers use more funding and resources? Absolutely, I will always say that. Um, they also need more directed resources. As was said earlier by Jennifer, you know, we are often in the, you know, bureaucracy is, is the speed of molasses. And sometimes we're dealing with such bureaucratic systems. And by the time the funding actually gets to where it is needed, it's a, it's a trickle of what it was. And the direction is like playing a game of telephone. Um, by the time that the, it gets to the guys on the ground, um, they're unable to get the mission accomplished because of how long it takes to make these things happen. So I would say key is, you know, forcing some type of mechanism that causes people to work together, that requires them to work together, that requires them to do reporting, that requires them to develop products and, to, and requires them to show that this is a, something that can be sustained um, beyond just personalities, but develop a business model. And I think that part of that is one, you have to have a strategy. And then secondly, you've got to develop that into a plan. And then you've got, we've got to execute it so that it can live beyond the years of the folks that are on this panel. Thank you, very helpful. And Senator, I would just add on the back of that, uh, what Mike talks about, you know, data and these systems, um, I too agree. Um, that there are adequate resources uh, that are available, uh, but I would never stop short of saying that additional uh, resources uh, could not uh, be supportive and helpful. Um, and I think that when we, when we think through the lens and talk about relationships, I think we all have relationships now um, and we rely on those relationships to help us meet our mandate. I think what we lack are those systems and those formal structures. And without those systems and formal structures, we really lack a mechanism to develop uh, a sustainable uh, infrastructure that will last beyond in, in any of our serviceability. I would also um, just point to one, uh, you know, one example um, and one, uh, you know, one comment around flexibility. I think when, during the early days of uh, the response to COVID-19, um, I think in some instances we got a lot of, uh, 
you know, relief from the bureaucratic, bureaucratic uh, you know, hover that hangs over us with regards to those processes that Mike talked about uh, to make resources and money available. I think when we saw some of the relaxing of that, that flexibility allowed local jurisdictions, state jurisdictions, the flexibility that they needed to be able to get things done across department uh, and across enterprise. Um, so again, uh, you know, any thinking around how we can formalize those systems, those structures, and really think about uh, the flexibility that's really needed to get the work done uh, being made available as best as could be. I understand that we have to have them to manage the resources, uh, but we also need to think about the flexibility that's needed to truly meet the growing uh, demand um, and the growing, uh, you know, the growing flexibility and dynamics of the different threats that we're facing. They're ever-changing, uh, and we need that flexibility as well. Thank you very much. Great answers. Um, thanks, Tom. Uh, uh, I agree. Uh, next, we'll go to Secretary Shalala, but I, as I think about it, I could also say Dean Shalala, Chancellor Shalala, <laughs> University President Shalala, and Congresswoman Shalala, but uh, <coughs> most important to us, back as a commissioner, a member of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Donna, it's all Thank yours. Thank you very much. Um, you know, this is... Uh, tremendously complex. I just wanted to add a couple of things. Number one, we're trying to get different cultures actually to work together. And I'm not talking about ethnicity. Each of these first responders have their own cultures. That requires maybe some cross training. That is they're trained together so that they understand each other better. The second point I wanna make is that HIPAA is not in the way. There is a carve out in HIPAA for dealing with data that needs to be shared. I know because I wrote it and um, it actually um, is there. So HIPAA is not the problem. And third, um, we need to break down some of these silos and get these agencies to work together. But that's why I thought we created Homeland Security, that Homeland Security was going to integrate uh, a lot of this uh, for us, including the public health piece because Homeland Security took part of the public health piece from HHS so that it really could truly integrate. Um, what I worry about, uh, and I think we have to be careful on our report, is that if we're going to re-engineer and fix the communication systems, we ought not to do it from the top down, but rather from the bottom up. The importance of these panels is to understand what's happening on the ground before we suggest some things to rebuild it. And those are the only points I wanna make. Can I, can I add something to that? Um, I think that's absolutely right. And one of the things that came out of the round table was like layers and layers of questions we had that we were only able to talk to a subset first responders, right? Because we were asking first responders to meet us during the middle of their response to COVID. I think that there's probably still more work that the commission can do on information gathering um, more broadly, following up on some of the questions we were only able and topics we were only able to just touch on um, during the roundtable. So I, I think that's exactly right. Um, there are so many areas of inquiry where I really wanted to be able to say, I wanted to follow this 
this thread and, and see where it ended up and then compare it to California to New York or the emergency, um, the EMS to the fire, to the fire to the police and and then you know ask where they got trusted information sources, et cetera. So um, I think there's something there that will require more work, um, but I definitely agree that it needs to be bottom up versus us just sitting in Washington thinking about what we think should be done. All right, thanks Jennifer. Thanks Donna and Jim Greenwood, you're next. Thank you, thank you. I wanna read uh, a paragraph from the report. It's the title, EMS feels underrepresented at the federal level. One of the strongest areas of consensus at the roundtable was the participants feel that the participants feel that until the EMS community receives more advocacy at the national level, EMS professionals and paramedics will continue to fall short in terms of preparedness. Participants of the roundtable strongly recommended that a federal organization begin to serve as a centralized body for information sharing, funding, and advocating on behalf of EMS and, and slash paramedics. My, I, I can, my colleagues and I, I think, can hear uh, the debate on the floor of the House and the Senate, which will be, someone will stand up and say something like, oh, here we go again. We're going to create a bureaucracy within a bureaucracy, and we're going to start handing out federal dollars, and every one of those dollars will have a string attached. And the next thing we know, Uncle Sam becomes big brother, and we're telling local EMS uh, volunteer agencies that now you've got to do this differently and you've got to do that differently and you're inadequate. So how do we, how do we get the best of both worlds here? How, how do we um, get the blessings of a centralized federal organization that can provide the, the kinds of services and the needs that your roundtable participants were discussing without um, creating the concern that I that I mentioned here that it becomes obtrusive. You talked about, uh, I think Jennifer, you talked about the uh, the, the re you want to reduce administrative burden, and we don't want to uh, create more administrative burden. So that's a question for uh, each of the panelists. I hope. Uh, again, I, uh, I I apologize for continually referencing uh, practical examples, um, but I do um, I do. Agree. That's what we need. Yeah. Uh, thank you, sir. Um, and I do agree uh, in thinking about uh, tying my response um, in your to your question um, around uh, further comment, uh, earlier comments around culture. Um, and I do believe the, the lack of understanding of the respective cultures that represent the different disciplines leads to some of the interagency and interdiscipline dysfunction that does exist. And I think from a practical standpoint, I think if we take a look at the respect of public safety disciplines, I think there has always been a general pecking order and police and fire have always sat at the top of that pecking order. And I respectfully offer this um, from my seat of personal experience, um, not to speak for the discipline, but I think if you spoke to individuals that are in the emergency medical services side of the house, I think you will always feel, uh, you, you will always hear that overtone of uh, being subordinate, if not, uh, you know, if not as a discipline, certainly to fire. Um, so the question, you know, how do we find a way to integrate them to give them uh, a proper seat um, and a proper voice without further creating uh, that, that bureaucracy? I think in the city of Boston, uh, we've done a good job of working across disciplines. Um, we always consistently uh, bring and ensure that EMS is represented at the table uh, for 
uh, the subject matter expertise that they bring. Um, but there are admittedly so, uh, you know, instances in the conversation where it can be a challenge. And I think one of the potential issues um, that we could bump into, and again, I don't know how we get over this, is when we think about EMS and how their services are employed across the country, I think it really is a hybrid model. Uh, police and fire are traditionally tied to some level of governmental service, most, most notably municipal. Um, when you get to some of your larger jurisdictions, um, uh, EMS uh, is too municipal. But when you think about um, other jurisdictions, it <laughs> represents the country writ large statistically. It's really the private sector, um, you know, that delivers that level of, and that type of service. And how do we innovatively ensure that, uh, you know, uh, the, the private side that is driven by profit is appropriately represented in the discussion, representing the discipline, but doesn't muddy uh, the, the very need for the bureaucracies and the protections that we have in place while also balancing out giving EMS a voice. Um, so I don't know if I, if I muddied that up just a little bit, um, but those are some of the practical things that we observe on the ground. Um, and I would also imagine could be some of the challenges in terms of how we try and make uh, such a policy shift or legislative shift to uh, bridge uh, and bring them uh, into the conversation uh, as a primary. Let me just do a quick follow-up before I ask the other panelists to respond. So put the, the fire and the police aside, Chief, and just yes, talking sir. about EMS. Um, would you have concerns that if the federal government started providing, creating the standards by which you need to function uh, that comes along with the grant making and the information and so forth, would you have concerns that, um, that, that people in Washington are telling you how to do your job and your, your staff how to do their job? Um, when you really know best, is that a, would that be a concern? Yeah, there's always so there's always that concern, right, um, about the federal government dictating, um, and you know, which is why I shared earlier on um, at the local level. Um, for us, it does become very narrow in the end around constituent services. We're really that last line of our federalist system in delivering services to people on the ground. So there is always, uh, you know, that challenge. Um, with regards to being dictated by the federal government. And again, respectfully so, we understand the need um, to have appropriate uh, checks and balances in, in place to protect the vital resources, um, but that could be a challenge. And, and, and I do believe that as we think about that, the greater challenge could be how do we integrate uh, the public side and the private side into a mechanism that is actionable, um, serviceable, and most importantly, sustainable uh, to ensure that they're represented. So, uh, yes, I do uh, see that uh, potentially being a challenge uh, in, in, in that discussion. Thank you. And from uh, my perspective, you know, in the, in the National Network of Fusion Centers, you know, one of the, the key components that we have is our liaison officer program. Um, it goes by many names, but trying to bring in uh, those constituents from EMS, from fire, from all the disciplines. And just yesterday, we had uh, the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, uh, Center for Homeland Defense and Security, has a course for uh, Fusion Center Leadership, uh, educational symposium. And yesterday, we had uh, three folks that represent the outreach. Uh, uh, they were fire service, but they, they represent those groups that are responsible for the outreach to EMS. Um, it is growing within the network, but we do need more collaboration capability. We have one director in the country that came from an EMS background in New York, and he's right now the director of the Fusion Center in Washington, D.C., uh, Danelle Harvin. Uh, but, you know, beyond Dr. Harvin, 
Um, we need more leadership infusion centers. We need more participation in EMS. We need more folks that are part of that liaison officer program because they become those folks out there in the field that uh, become resources for us for information collection, but also for our dissemination. They're the ones that are going to see things most often. They're the first responders that are dealing with call after call of uh, contact with people out there that they will see suspicious behavior, that they will see indicators of opioid epidemic, that they will see indications of people becoming sick and because of some contagious disease. Um, but, you know, we need that to be, as, as was said earlier, we need that to be consistent around the nation. We need resources to make that happen. And right now, um, you know, there's 80 fusion centers, uh, but not every fusion center has a fusion center liaison officer program. We only have 70 as of 2018 uh, assessment on fusion centers that have a program um, that has that capacity. Uh, we need everyone to have that. And we need to be able to touch every first responder out there with information sharing. And Mike, could I just add very briefly, uh, uh, on the back of that, I would also, uh, you know, argue in support of those that are advocating for EMS's position, uh, that they have been as innovative um, and flexible uh, and really evolving over time as well. So when we think about active shooters and we think about teams that go in, uh, we now train and we have examples where EMS are part of the team. They're, they're actually moving with the officers as they go in. So they have uh, become much more innovative um, and certainly have changed and evolved with the times. And I, and I would put that out there just as an example of uh, you know, them uh, being an equal partner in how we think about response. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, a couple things. So I think that, you know, the Department of Homeland Security has thought a lot about how it can collate and pull together information that's helpful to first responders. And I don't know the status of this, but I know at one point, um, CWMD was investigating, pulling together and creating like an Amazon type platform where you know, you could share best practices, you could share technologies, and somehow DHS would be a clearinghouse just so you wouldn't get junk up there, right? But it was credible pieces and, you know, you could, you know, press a button and buy. And so that's probably way off down the road. But I think to Chief Benford's and to your question to Chief about, you know, how would you feel about the government telling you and pushing down requirements? I think there's a balance and I think we're starting to find that balance. Um, um, right now with the Homeland Security Grant Program, there are these national priority areas um, that are mandated spends. Um, and in some cases, you know, FEMA is trying to work really hard to, based on whatever maturity level your organization is at, provide recommendations, right? And to provide technical assistance out, not as a requirement, but as here's some ideas. Um, because in fact, we don't have a one place and one shop to go where um, as these localities are thinking about how they should be spending their money, they can they can collab be collaborative with each other to figure out, you know, well, what's San Antonio doing that's really cool? Oh, Austin has this. And so um, I think there's a lot that we can do as the federal government and it's it, by pulling some of these things together and making it easier um, for first responders. Um, so, that, that's one thing that I would add. And I think we just need to continue improving upon um, as we're putting out dollars, you know, balancing, giving good ideas and sharing what we as the federal government maybe know with not being too restrictive that we don't allow um, state and locals to address their needs and, and gaps that they have identified. And it's a fine balance. 
Thank you. I yield back, Joe. Uh, thanks, Jim. And uh, final questioner on this for this panel is uh, Ken, the Honorable Ken Weinstein. Okay. Uh, thanks, Senator. Just, uh, I guess, a quick question for you, Chief Benford. Um, sort of uh, interested about just the day-to-day -day operations of the fusion centers. One of the themes that has um, sort of guided our work uh, on this commission is the imperative at sort of all levels of government to make sure that we're, we're sort of engaged in sustained effort between the crises. So that, you know, it's not just reacting to a crisis, responding to a crisis, and then once we get through that, sort of putting it on the back shelf and then moving on to the next issue, you know, in some other dis area or discipline. And that's a problem, you know, dealing with any threat. And that's sort of a, a chronic issue in, in government operations generally. Um, and we've talked about that in terms of, you know, whether it's at the White House level, um, department level, or, um, you know, collaboration among different levels of federal, state, and local, and tribal, et cetera. So I guess I'd ask that, that question as to the operations of the Fusion Center, and just to use the Boston Fusion Center as an example. Do you find that, um, like, sort of between the crises, that the intelligence flow, the requirements process, the engagement and participation sort of remains constant because that's so critical. That sort of continued sustained operation between crises is so critical. Establishing the relationship, the tempo, the um, understanding and expectations of all the players so that when a crisis does come along, it's more effective. So um, you have any comments about that? Yes, sir, thank you. Um, and, and I respectfully, uh, uh, don't don't speak uh, for Dave Caravan uh, and his team over there at the Brick. Um, mm -hmm. We'll say that they are um, a valued partner, and, um, and and I'll answer your question in a bifurcated way, sir. Um, one, when we think about public safety, uh, again, traditionally uh, that intelligence has been shared um, and really maintained and housed through a public safety lens. However, um, we know that the threat is emerging how uh, our country is being attacked in a number of different ways uh, is emerging. So I think the, uh, the, the Fusion Center um, has shown its nimbleness in being able um, to be flexible as well. When we think about bioterrorism, when we think about uh, the response to the pandemic, what we found was when we think about the full uh, city enterprise and what it took to manage through this crisis, we realized how integrated uh, all of the services were. And in many instances, it was led um, by public safety. Um, however, it was driven by the intelligence and the information that we were getting from public health. So we experienced some of the challenges and the barriers, um, uh, you know, moving from agency, uh, excuse me, from discipline to discipline. Um, however, the share of information, the flow of information was consistent. What we have found and what I will say from my seat um, is when we think about uh, the city enterprise and all of the different departments that impact service delivery across the city. Uh, emergency management has been helpful with access to that information in providing that and ensuring that nondescript city departments that are vital partners in how we deliver services was getting that information. So when we think about uh, the school system and the sensitivity uh, you know, uh, that they have around privacy rights. When we think about elections, um, when we think about things like public works, right? Uh, we know that uh, snowstorms, uh, you, know, uh, you know, at the local level, uh, if a mayor can't get a street plowed, um, it could, be, could spell challenges for him or her. 
Um, so ensuring that we have access to that information to share across the city enterprise has been extremely helpful to directly answer your question. Uh, the information has consistently, uh, it is really not uh, to Dave Carabin and the Brick and the Fusion team here that that information is consistently shared absolutely um, with, you know, optimism and expectation, hopefully that we can grow on that in the future, sir, by bringing on other partners like public health and others. Okay, that's that's encouraging to hear. Any other, anybody else want to jump on that? I would just jump on right, from Jennifer. the I, I would just say that from the federal level, um, I often see us really doing well in some areas during a response and then steady state. It's kind of a little meandering. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's simply about leadership because there are leaders that know how to rally their troops during um, steady state. Um, you know, we really saw that right after 9-11, right? The patriotism, the, you know, intense mission focus. Um and I think we need to somehow tap into that. Maybe there's a moment after COVID to kind of um, bring that back in, but um, we really need to hear that from our leaders, right? A reminder of why we're here, what we're doing, why it matters. Um, and I don't think it's impossible. Um, I don't think it's an impossible issue to solve. And, and I was gonna add, you know, thanks to the support of the Office of Director of National Intelligence, um, we've started develop and we've got a number of regional intelligence coordination plans developed. And part of those plans is, you know, how do you operate in steady state and how do you operate in crisis? And, you know, it, it's sad to say that, you know, almost coming up to 20 years from September 11th, it's taken us this long to come up with regional uh, integration and coordination plans um, because, you know, we need to work together as fusion centers, whether it's the riots at the Capitol and all the data that was being collected across the national network of fusion centers and provided to the fusion center in Washington, DC, or whether it is the pandemic, we all have to work together in unison. And, you know, rather than, and I know that, uh, you know, that Jennifer had mentioned, hey, you've seen one fusion center, you've seen one fusion center. Um, <laughs> each fusion center will have nuances based on their geography, based on their constituency. So we don't want to uh, strip fusion centers away from that ability to be agile, to be able to adapt to their environment. But, you know, we did develop the baseline capabilities for fusion centers. And it's more like the kitchen sink of what every fusion center could possibly do. Um, it's a lot of things in that baseline capabilities document. Uh, we do need to focus on what are the priorities for the country and how do we get the resources to those centers? I mean, and, and we need resources directly to centers. That, uh, ultimately, that's the way it needs to be um, because if it doesn't um, and we don't have the guidance and support to make that happen, we can have the flexibility to address the threat of today. We're always getting guidance that deals with the knee-jerk reaction of what just happened, not the threat ahead of us. And that's what we need to be able to develop across our network of fusion centers is that capacity and that true collaboration of the multiple disciplines that we need in every fusion center to make this work. We also need to be able to give every person that's in that center the proper clearance classification and the ability to possess and review information from multiple disciplines. That includes criminal justice information, that includes public health information, that includes emergency management information, because right now we have silos of data that we can't share among folks who are sitting in the same room, and that's a problem. Okay, so, thanks very much. Thank you, Ken. Yeah. Uh, thanks to the three of you. Um, honestly, I, I can't, uh, can't say that there's, I could have asked for more. You really added value to our work and from the unique perspective of people who are in the field on the ground or talking to people who are uh, doing that. And uh, 
I appreciate it very much. The reward for your remarkable testimony is that the commission will continue to want to be engaged with you because it's clear that uh, we have a lot to do in this area uh, and uh, as a country, and we want to try to be uh, constructive in that regard, uh, but we can't do it uh, intelligently without the help of people who are on the front lines. So thank you and uh, all the best in the work that you do for all of us. Thanks very much. Continuing this uh, virtual commission meeting, uh, holding the line on biodefense, uh, supporting our first response to large-scale biological events. This panel is going to be devoted to uh, taking a look at uh, resources and support given to the uh, first responder community. And I would tell our panelists that your impressive bios are included in the material that's been distributed uh, to the commission, to the panelists. So I'm just going to introduce you and then you can expect uh, some, some good inquiries from my colleagues on the panel. Uh, first, I want to introduce uh, Fire Chief William Jones, East Liverpool, Ohio, and he'll be followed by Adia Gaynor, Executive Director of the National Associate of State EMS Officials. Uh, we want to thank you for your participation today. Uh, I would tell you that uh, this is the fifth, I think, virtual meeting we've had. We'd much rather be seated across the table for, from you but we're grateful for your participation and your contribution in this ongoing effort by this bipartisan commission to deal with issues of biodefense. And you're building on a foundation that we began, we created over five years ago, and uh, uh, we need your input and we're grateful for it. So I'm gonna first go to you, Chief Bill, William Jones. Chief Jones. Uh, thank you, uh, Governor Rich. Uh, and good after commissioners, and thank you for this opportunity to uh, speak with you uh, today. Um, as we all know, this public health emergency, it has a tremendous impact across the globe and here in the states. Uh, and our first responders uh, were definitely unprepared for the magnitude of this event. Uh, first responders across uh, the country and in our area lacked the needed quantities of PPE uh, to perform their jobs. Uh, the, these first responders, uh, some stories, these first responders were using uh, N95 masks that were designed for single use and they ended up using them multiple times. Um, they had to try to get them cleaned and uh, sterilized, and that was difficult with the um, amount that that they had. Um, you know, most agencies lacked the ability to send theirs out to be cleaned. As as we know, there were several companies that, that were cleaning N95s, uh, and and some of these agencies were unable to send these uh, N95s out to. Uh, be clean because they, they lack the adequate amount uh, of supplies. Uh, and some that were sent out uh, to be cleaned, they, they were unable to be sent back because they were too soiled uh, uh, to be cleaned. So uh, th those companies ended up throwing those masks away. So 
it just left the PPEs uh, for N95s uh, lacking. Um, the PPE from the SNS supplies were delayed in getting uh, to our area and to other areas from uh, speaking with my peers. Uh, so, you know, it's lo local communities and stepped up with, with donations. I know in our area, uh, dentist's office, uh, manufacturing agencies, uh, auto body shops were donating their N95s to be used by healthcare workers and first responders. Uh, people also donated to the local emergency management agencies and they ended up redistributing uh, those, those donated supplies. Uh, it, it was at a point, um, as Governor Ridge said, I live in Ohio and we are near several Amish communities and the Amish ended up making disposable gowns out of construction house wrap to uh, help protect the first responders and uh, healthcare workers. So, that, I mean, that, it, it was nice that, to see that the local communities stepped up to help us. Uh, and as we know, the first responders are a frontline defense of our country. And a recent article on, online via uh, EMS-1, uh, they had a chart that listed the deaths of the EMS workers and first responders from COVID-19. Uh, the um, article was dated September 25th, 2020. And in that article, um, it lists EMS workers uh, were at 14 deaths per 100,000. Uh, firefighters were at 13 deaths per 100,000. And police officers were at 12 deaths per 100,000. Nurses were five deaths per 100,000 and physicians were three deaths per 100,000. So you can see how it really affected our, our frontline workers by the lack of uh, the proper PPE and the proper training. Uh, our our frontline workers are the forefront uh, of this fight and continue to be uh, on the forefront as, as we continue this fight. Uh, I, I did read your um, report on holding the line on biodefense and I, stay strictly with the EMS part. And I do ag agree with several points that were made in that uh, art article. And, and one, I, I believe there should be a national EMS agency created and, and removed from the National Highway uh, Traffic Safety Administration. And I agree with placing the EMS uh, agency under uh, health and Human Services, maybe under their ASPR program, or their uh, or or FEMA under one of their uh, programs. Uh, I, and also in your report, you said all um, EMS is underfunded, and I believe all first responders agencies are currently underfunded at at, at this time. Uh, I did a quick research. Um, on required PPE uh, for EMS agencies in Ohio, and also did the surrounding states that uh, bordered o Ohio. 
And in, in that research, I found that EMS agencies are only required to have two sets of PPE for EMS unit. Um, that, to me, that's very inadequate. And those are all state agencies that require that. So I, I, I believe a, a national agency or should be um, placed to find some way to in, increase the required PPE supplies for these um, companies. Uh, also on the uh, training, there are various avenues of federally funded training through FEMA, such as the Center for uh, Domestic Preparedness. Uh, they do offer uh, several classes for first responders. And I, I have personally attended that um, agency and, and they do have good uh, training available. However, with that being said, it, it, it is difficult for agencies to send their personnel to these classes as, you know, daily, daily staffing is um, a, a problem to a lot of agencies, uh, in, including mine. And then you have the economic cost of trying to backfill those uh, positions for uh, to uh, keep your staffing up. So it's, it's kind of an economic hardship with the um, uh, classes. And then if, if someone would have to attend on, on their own time, it, it is kind of an economic hardship for that, my employees or any employees to attend if, if they use their own uh, vacation time, personal time or uh, PTO time. Uh, with, with, with that being said, that's really all I have at this time. And I, I do uh, wish to entertain questions from the commission if they would have any. We have the in waiting, uh, Ms. Rhea Gaynor. Thank you, Governor Ridge and commissioners. It's, a, it's an honor to present to you this morning uh, and for afternoon for some of you, depending on your time zone. My name is Dia Gaynor. I'm the executive director of the National Association of State Emergency Medical Services officials. Our members uh, are uh, every state, all 50 states EMS office, uh, the District of Columbia and five territories. Four out of five of them are based in the state health department. The others are either freestanding boards or commissions or in the state Consolidated Department of Public Safety. Um, very basic <coughs> duty to protect the public in a regulatory frame of mind, licensing paramedics and emergency medical technicians. By our count, there are over 1 million EMS personnel currently licensed in the United States. They license ambulance services and other EMS agencies. There are over 23,000 of those organizations licensed by the states, over 18,000 of which respond to 911 calls. I bring that up to help you think about the footprint of this incredible manpower resource that is mobile and available to their communities on a day-to-day 911 -day basis 
let alone a disaster or a, pa a pandemic type of scenario. Our members set the minimum requirements as Chief Jones just mentioned about equipment, minimum staffing requirements, radio and other telecommunications and telehealth capabilities, uh, and very importantly, patient care reporting requirements. I'll talk about that in, in just a second. But our members also have a, another dimension, unlike say a state board of medicine that licenses physicians and then the physicians are left to their own devices wherever they work. Our members also have more complex legislative mandates to develop, implement, lead, and ultimately regulate systems of care for time-sensitive emergencies. Generally, these take the form of trauma systems, uh, uh, stroke, uh, disasters, uh, and other conditions where the clock makes a big difference. Um, but what's important about those time-sensitive systems of care is that they have attributes that are applicable to a disaster, a pandemic, or an other major low-frequency, high-criticality event like protocols, the clinical guidelines that the crews, the EMTs and paramedics uh, could, should follow. Destination determination, which hospitals do these patients go to and why? And what we learned very vividly during COVID-19 when they should not be taken to the hospital. But effective EMS systems, you know, simply prevent moderate medical emergencies, whether that's exposure to a, a biological hazard or some other uh, endangerment from becoming a serious medical emergency, preventing serious medical emergencies from becoming something that causes permanent disability, uh, and preventing severe conditions from turning fatal. Uh, patient outcomes, patient safety, but above and beyond those two things, EMS personnel safety are foremost in our minds. Chief Jones did a great job of talking about PPE. I'll simply say ditto, Chief Jones, to everything you said about PPE challenges. And, and I think there are more, especially as it relates, relates to marketplace uh, cost and resource availability issues. But in this mode, you know, EMS and EMS systems are very, very diverse. In some states, they may be predominantly fire department based. In other states, I'll use North Dakota as an example, 137 ambulance services, the vast majority of which are rural volunteers with no affiliation with a fire department. They are, you know, loose knit incorporated groups of well-meaning uh, community members who meet the same minimum standard as their career counterparts in the bigger cities. They rise to the challenge, whether it's through holding bake sales or donations or stipends from local government, um, keep themselves afloat through a variety of, of unstable uh, ways. So in, especially in light of a pandemic, but also on a day-to-day -day basis, and even if it's a motor coach crash, you know, uh, that closes an interstate highway for six hours, um, the EMS serves as this safety net for public health, right? When prevention efforts fail or when vaccination efforts aren't rolling out fast enough, uh, the 911 system picks up the pieces. 
you know, on behalf of the rest of the healthcare system. And as incidents get larger, then that brings in the emergency management type focus. And it puts EMS in this, in this intersection, um, whether you want to use a stepchild reference or a not my problem reference. And I think uh, this is where I'd also uh, bring up the question about federal support. Uh, this is a, a very um, sort of volatile subject at times, depending on which interest group uh, the discussion is raised with. Uh, and there is, in fact, a, a strong federal partner in the U.S. Department of Transportation at NHTSA uh, that makes a robust patient care system reporting possible called NEMSIS, or the National EMS Information System. And I want to talk about patient care reporting because it's a, it's a, a perfect balancing point between states that require that patient care reporting be done by EMS crews after every 911 activation. In some states, it's voluntary, but nonetheless, there are uh, there are uh, there are only, or, or I'm sorry, there are 46 states actively submitting uh, their local patient care reports to a national repository. So the system's in widespread use. And I bring this up in the context of the, of the subjects that we were briefed that you would be interested in as it relates to resource availability. Uh, again, Chief Jones covered the PPE piece, uh, but resource availability also includes the, the humans, the, right, the manpower, the crews that are in the backs of those ambulances or on those fire engines or in those helicopters and, and their availability to treat and transport patients uh, and ultimately document their findings, the signs and symptoms the person was having, resource availability is a two-way street. The information that's available from local EMS agencies is incredibly powerful. And I raise this because it seems to be an unknown for other federal partners outside of USDOT um, if you were to look for the EMS program or unit or office in ASPR, I don't think you'd find it. If you looked at, in CDC, you wouldn't find it. Even if you looked in FEMA, you wouldn't find it. And yet, states contributed 44 million patient care records to the National Repository last calendar year alone. 44 million 911 responses detailing the patient's chief complaint, the signs and symptoms they were exhibiting, what kinds of medication had to be administered, where the patient was transported, why the patient was transported, where they were transported. And 12,000 local EMS agencies submitted those records through their state EMS office to that national repository. States that are on the most current version of Nemesis, the record, when that paramedic, when Chief Jones's paramedic closes that record, if his state is on the most current version of Nemesis, that record is uploaded in seven minutes to the National Repository. Seven minutes. So think about having millions of records every few you know, months uh, or hundreds of thousands potentially a day within seven minutes of the EMT or paramedic recording their findings. 
I know of no other information system in all of healthcare that could detect the spike, that could notice what's up with all these respiratory events in these three states all of a sudden. Uh, and so that, that's something that I would say from a federal support standpoint, states are laboring furiously to maintain these record systems and make them as dynamic in real time as possible. And yet utilization is remarkably absent. Um, I would say finally, you know, on that question of, of the potential for federal support, you know, that really that would depend on federal focus. And unless and until there is a federal agency, whether it's the NHTSA office of EMS or elsewhere is both charged with and fully enabled and resourced to assist EMS agencies uh, will continue with the permanent scars of what we've learned about EMS system weaknesses, not by any local aid, uh, community's fault uh, that exists today. Um, Mr. Chairman, I'll conclude my comments there. Delighted to answer any questions. Well, I wanna thank uh, both of you. Uh, this whole question of uh, resources and support is something we heard uh, initially from our first panel. You've given it uh, a, a quite a bit more depth uh, the first panel was talking about the need for information sharing to be broadened, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you uh, also bring another dimension that is uh, absence of federal, I would say oversight, absence of federal resources, absence of federal direction, absence from a distinct federal partner that can use the information you can generate 44 million times a year. So you've given very provocative testimony. I want to go with, to uh, the heart of something I think is inherent in both of your uh, uh, statements. Obviously PPE was a problem, uh, but the entire country was ill-prepared for that need writ large. So that doesn't, that's not just uh, uh, EMS, that was just characterizing our inability, uh, no, not even our inability. We were just ill-prepared for it. But putting the question of equipment uh, aside and PPE aside, if there were to be a central focus uh, for EMS federal oversight in the federal government, I'm intrigued by the fact the reports go to the Department of Transportation, but I, I said to myself, but I wonder one, one is that information provided to CDC or HHS and two, uh, if not, why not? And three, uh, who does the analysis to send whatever critical reports might be forthcoming from an analysis down to the fusion centers to push back out to EMS again in other parts? So, so I wanna ask you from your perspective, if you were to align an EMS center point, a partner in one of the federal agencies, where would it be? CDC, HHS, where do you put it? Ladies first. Oh, yeah. Mr. Chairman, you're tough, you're tough. Uh, th that's, a, that's a difficult question to answer without acknowledging the significant level of effort that the US Department of Transportation has made and invested in this system for the last 20 years. Good. It was our members who begged for it. 
begged for it. And had CDC stepped up or had, well, then aspirin had, didn't yet exist, had another federal agency sort of stepped up to help us with the universal data dictionary and the XML standard and all the electronic parts that make this all work, uh, they would be equal partners. Uh, but I cannot answer the question of where the loop that you just described closes. I'm not sure it does. Well, you know what? It's so refreshing for somebody to respond. I'm not sure what the answer is uh, because you do have loyalty and some support within uh, Department of Transportation, obviously. Do you know whether or not that information, I mean, I listen, I, I'm here before you today because one of my, my, one of my emergencies required a 911, trust me. Uh, they were there in 10 minutes and I'm a boy with the details, so I get it. And uh, the two questions I have, one, does the uh, Department of Transportation analyze it and send the information on to CDC and HHS? I do, I, I do see, oh, the, there's clearly analysis that occurs at the NEMSIS Technical Assistance Center okay. at the University of Utah that's funded by NHTSA's Office of Emergency Medical Services. Uh, there are uh, graphical analysis that's done and I'm confident it's transmitted or shared. And there's also pretty extensive peer reviewed journal research that depends on the, the data. Uh, in all appropriate de-identified aggregate forms that makes publication of peer-reviewed research possible. Okay, and uh, finally to you, and then I wanna ask uh, the Chief Jones to respond. Uh, the reports are generated every seven minutes, did you say? Seven minutes of the- in, of in, in, states, in states that are using the most current Nemesis version, the reports are uploaded within seven minutes of the EMT or paramedic closing the record. It is a report of the condition of the individual at the time EMS responded, not a report dealing with the ultimate outcome. That's correct. Okay. Someday health information exchange may make that possible to connect it to the outcome. In some places that's already occurring. Very helpful. Uh, Chief Jones, uh, East Liverpool, 11,000 people. Are you full-time EMS or uh, part-time? Uh, we're full-time, sir. Uh, good for you. Yeah. we. Fortunate. We, we've actually been in existence for 125 years. So. But given uh, the size of your population, do you have mutual aid agreements uh, with the communities that might be, I know you're right up against my border, Pennsylvania border, but you have like mutual aid agreements with the, uh, EMS on the Pennsylvania line or other communities uh, in your uh, in your county? Uh, we do. We we are only one of two career departments in our county. It's a county of 100,000 people and we, we have two career departments. So yeah, we, we do mutual aid with EMS and we do mutual aid with with fire also. And also we, we do cross states. We are a our regional hazardous materials team that we do um, uh, we, we do have mutual aid agreements with West Virginia and Pennsylvania that we do assist them also with um, those services. Uh, final question, as you take a look at the inventory of equipment that you have for your shop and then compare it to uh, Columbus, Ohio or Cleveland or someplace like that, do you proportionally have 
the same kind of equipment, but obviously less? Or do you lack some of the equipment that some of the bigger communities have? And if so, how readily available is it to you in times of crisis? Well, we, um, we're one of the lucky ones. Being a uh, regional hazardous materials team, uh, we, we have a lot of equipment already that we can use on our EMS side. So we, we were one of the lucky ones where I, I had adequate PPE, I had adequate um, gowns, disposable gowns, uh, gloves. So we were lucky because, and I believe only because of the um, relationship we have with HAZMAT. Uh, we are what's called a, a, a typed team, so we are required to have the same equipment as a team in Columbus would have, uh, but not to the levels of inventory that they would have. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we, we were one of the lucky ones. Well, uh, you've answered my question from there. From your description as being one of the lucky ones, I guess I could conclude there are a lot of other similar EMS uh, teams that don't have uh, uh, the, same, the same equipment proportionally, right? That is, that is correct. There, there are a lot of EMS agencies surrounding us that were uh, struggling to get PPE. Uh, Senator Lieberman. Yes, sir. I wanna make sure I'm not muted. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thanks to both of you uh, for your excellent testimony, which is helpful to us. Chief, I, I thought um, your, your uh, story about the uh, lack of adequate PPE was really poignant and compelling. So um, a couple of things. Uh, I, I assume it got better as time went on in the last year? That is correct. It has improved immensely. Yeah. And uh, as it did, uh, of course, for all of us. Um, uh, and uh, if I got you right, um, I think you said that you thought the requirement for how much uh, PPE uh, you had to have was probably uh, a state uh, regulation or law. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, sir. So is there any work going on with the state of Ohio or other states to um, uh, by your colleagues? Uh, to uh, uh, make sure that the, the next time we have a problem like this, uh, you've you got enough PPE? Uh, not to my knowledge, there's, there's nothing at this point. Okay, so that's something um, we want to work on. Obviously, there is a strategic national stockpile, which had PPE, but uh, even though there was some indication at the beginning that they felt they had enough, they clearly did not. So we were running uh, to catch up and thank God um, we ultimately did. So I'm gonna come back to you in a minute, Chief. Uh, I'm just your testimony. And um, in, in the previous panel, uh, the witnesses focused a lot on the uh, disconnect of um, public health personnel with, for instance, fusion centers or broader emergency management uh, operations. And of course, uh, representing state emergency medical services, you're part of that public health sector. So um, I wanted to ask you from your perspective, 
Uh, would you say that's true nationally, you know, as the executive director of the National Association of State Emergency Medical Services officials, is it true that, um, that the public health uh, experts and, and uh, implementers, the large numbers that you talk about who handle so much, uh, are not really integrated in the broader emergency uh, response operations and plans, including, of course, uh, such as those that went into effect of necessity uh, once we realized we were in a pandemic, but, uh, and, and were inherently public health uh, problems. Senator Lieberman, the, uh, <laughs> the appropriate answer would be it varies wildly by, uh -huh. by community, by county, by region, by state. There yeah. were brilliant examples of integration of public health and emergency medical services in partnerships like we've never seen before, especially on the vaccination front. There were others where the even basic lines of communications were not open. And some, if you will, um, unintentional disregard of EMS as a component of the public health response. Right. And, and some of that is driven by federal guidance and resources. I'll bring up emergency support function number eight do a control F and search for the word ambulance. <laughs> you won't find much. So the guide, the very guidance that public health, well-meaning in, you know, attempting now to perform these emergency management type functions are not necessarily being prompted to think about EMS as part of the public health infrastructure and public health response versus assuming, oh, maybe the hospitals have that taken care of. Yeah, okay, that's that's really interesting. I love your use of the word, word wildly, <laughs> varying. So um, from your perch and your perspective nationally on this, um, what's the best way our country could avoid those wild variations and guarantee that the next time we face an infectious disease epidemic or pandemic or some other public health crisis, even a bioterrorist attack, that uh, the, everywhere in the country, the, the public health personnel, uh, including, of course, emergency medical personnel are fully integrated. In other words, how do we do that nationally? Well, Senator, I fear that you will force me to raise Governor Ridge's question again, which is point to the federal agency that has the authority and scope to knock on that public health door and knock on that emergency management door so that not only among our federal partners, but all the downstream guidance, doctrine, principles, and other you know, materials and initiatives that are developed have an equal attention paid to EMS as other mainstream components of emergency management and public health. Okay, I, you know, we work very well together, Governor Rich and I, so I, I like to evoke an answer that uh, he, to a question he's raised. Thanks, that, that's, no, I get you, that's helpful. Chief, um, what's your perspective? I mean, you're the chief of the 
uh, fire department, and yet I, I know you have emergency medical service personnel within, if I understand it correctly, within your operation. So may, maybe you don't have the problem, but uh, do you, what's your perspective on being ready for uh, a, a pandemic or any, uh, any real public health crisis to make sure that the public health uh, agencies and systems are integrated even beyond the emergency medical personnel, hospitals, uh, health departments, et cetera, with your operation? Uh, again, we, we started early on in this pandemic, being from a small community and, and county, we were able to establish early on um, meetings with, uh, and th these were held regularly, weekly, uh, we, we met with uh, our local hospitals in, in the county, uh, emergency management agencies, uh, the health departments were all part of this coalition to talk and uh, confer on what's happening with each department, what each department can help do with uh, the other department. So I, I think that helped early on. So I think my perspective would be going forward is that good communications between agencies would always be helped. Start, start small coalitions, you know, with, with your hospitals, emergency management agencies. And it, it, the, the coalition actually grew to um, the Ohio Department of Aging and, uh, excuse me, but I, I lost the um, name, but they, it's, they house the, or they, um, they, they take care of the nursing homes. So we ended up meeting with, with, with those groups just so we could um, confer and exchange ideas and, and see which, which each other entity is uh, going and, and doing. That's great. And that was at your initiative or whose? No, it, it was, it was at our um, health our county health commissioner, he's the okay. one that has established this coalition. Okay, that's great. Uh, thank you both. Uh, very helpful. Governor, thank back you. to you. Well, I'm going to go uh, back on our other colleagues. Donna? Donna? Um, uh, I want to go back to the data source to make sure um, I understand uh, uh, the NEMSIS uh, data, which if I remember correctly is housed at the University of Utah, is only data, EMS data. It's not, if a person walks into an emergency room in this country, you don't have that data in that database. Is that correct? Yes, Madam Commissioner, that is correct. And uh, it's 911 sourced uh, incidents. Yeah, it's terrific data. It's actually um, uh, the HHS people know about it because they, uh, they integrate some of that into the, the National Center for Health Statistics uses uh, that data along with other data that they uh, collect. Um, though they've been underfunded, the advantage the EMS system has, it's been well-funded for a very long period of time and it's great, um, it's uh, uh, great data. Could I go back to the PPE? Because I want to make sure I understand. Initially, I take it that EMS services had um, 
um, PPE because they just assumed you needed it for an incident, not for an ongoing pandemic. And that's the way the laws were established, Chief? Yes, yes, Commissioner. I, I believe um, they are just to have for not really pandemics or other bio um, diseases. I think it's more for bloodborne pathogens, uh, for bloods, if they would get in contact. I, I don't believe it was established for uh, pandemics, but yeah. it's, it's very inadequate and only two sets per vehicle. So an organization like the National uh, Organization of State Legislators ought to take this one on um, in terms of changing laws across the country so that you don't have a limited supply. But what you said was that your supply increased over time, I guess, as the CARES Act uh, kicked in and as we got more PPE. Yes, and as it became more available, um, yes, we were able to pick, pick up uh, more PPE through uh, our, our, our state emergency management agency. They delivered a lot of PPE to local emergency managements in, in each county. And that's where our supplies began to uh, pick up. And Chief, um, I've actually been to East Liverpool. I'm a native of oh. Cleveland, so. Oh, nice. I'm not away if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, uh, Chief, how are you thinking about what kind of storage capacity you have to have for PPE assuming that there may be another pandemic or something of the sort. Are you thinking locally um, about what you need to do and how you need to think about these things? Yeah, it, we, we actually, through our, our county emergency management, have a um, stockpile now that uh, they warehouse. Uh, we, we personally keep a minimum of a 30-day supply of our PPE. Uh, is how we are handling it now. Mm -hmm. uh, Ms. Gaynor, uh, are you all thinking about that too in terms of national standards? Yes, Madam Commissioner, we have a uh, current study underway funded by the US Fire Administration to add state-specific content to their existing pandemic guidance. Uh, which was previously unaddressed. There was sort of no chapter for state EMS offices and means of assuring resiliency and operational stability at the local level via the regulatory and support framework that states have. So we are already addressing that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I wanna point out to the commissioners that the Department of Transportation, the National Highway Safety Act, they've been pretty well funded over the years. And one of the things we, called for in one of our early reports was an integrated budget so that uh, they knew what HHS had and um, uh, they were working together. We may have to go back to that now that we've seen the results of the pandemic and resources and data collection to talk about that again. Um, uh, but um, I do think that this data is uh, tremendously uh, important in the whole stockpile issue I'm glad um, that you're looking at it from a federal level, but more importantly, at a local level, the emergency management people are, are, are worrying about it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Don. I guess uh, on behalf of your fellow commissioners, I guess I want to ask you, if you're going to have uh, an EMS uh, center point uh, to 
would you keep it at transportation? Would you slide it over to CDC or put it in HHS? Uh, so you could help kind of coordinate within the federal government on down to the locals and states. I mean, she's our resident HHS and federal expert. So we, from time to time, go from the panel back to Donna. I'd follow the bunny, Carrie uh, uh, <laughs> Ridge. The, the problem is that HHS has so many things it needs to fund. We've underfunded CDC over the years. Um, the data uh, collection, the Center for Health Statistics is located in CDC, but the Public Health Service oversees it. I don't think we should think rationally about this. I think we should perhaps leave it, what it where it is and keep the coordination because the transportation safety people always get the kind of money that they need. And I'm, I'm more concerned about the coordination, knowing the committees of jurisdiction, uh, how the appropriators will look at this. Thank you, Donna. Thank you very much. And so and that's also, my kind of pragmatic approach. Oh, good, Richard. I had to have that perspective. It's important. Senator Daschle. Thank you, Tom. I, I uh, join my colleagues in, in thanking both of you for outstanding presentations again and appreciate your insight a great deal. Communication is something you both have put a, a real emphasis on and it's been somewhat of a theme through the whole day. I, uh, I referenced earlier an ongoing discussion around guidelines for smallpox vaccination at the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization practices that, that could be pertinent to the EMS community. And I guess I'm wondering how do discussions like these filter down to you and to your members? And do you have ways of improving communication uh, in settings like that with the EMS community to make sure that your perspective is taken into account? Oh, um, Senator, I think uh, we would join any effort to improve communications learning about where those opportunities exist and whether executive staff of an NGO or the elected officials of an NGO are welcome in the room is occasionally an issue. Uh, and- Interrupt and ask you, why would that be an issue? That seems odd to me, but I totally, I mean, I, I, I totally accept it. I'm just curious, why would that be? I would think they would invite it and, and welcome it as would our members. Uh, we have encountered that in the course of the pandemic year where there were conventions of federal officials and uh, that uh, the NGO perspective was uh, not permitted, literally that there were occasions where we weren't permitted uh, to participate. So the challenge becomes if a advisory committee, especially if it's a federally utilized advisory committee, crafts recommendations and the federal agency acts upon it and publishes it, then we're behind in, in right? It, because now it's been published and we're trying to play catch up. It's a very frustrating um, uh, circular activity. That's really remarkable. Thank you. That's, I can't imagine how, uh, how in this day and age, especially that could continue to be an issue, but thank you for your candor here. Chief Jones? Being, on, being on, on the local level, I'm not really apprised of how things go at the federal level. Um, we're just small fish here. So we, we, we keep in touch with you know, our, our associations, um, Fire Chiefs Association, 
uh, that, that help keeps us in, in touch with federal level talks. But you don't feel any real connection or there isn't any real line of communication between you and those federal agencies, is that correct? That is correct, sir. Interesting. Could I just follow up uh, just on one clarification? We were talking earlier, uh, several of my colleagues raised public health and I'm just curious, over the last 20 years, we've seen a fairly dramatic reduction in personnel and budgets for public health across the country. And I'm just wondering how much that impedes your work. How affected are you by this lack of support and the resources that, uh, that uh, Historically, we've dedicated to public health, but just aren't available today. Is that a, a big concern of yours or something that's only marginally affecting your operation? Um, it's a big concern because, you know, as we know, in um, operations like mine, we, we rely on staffing. And um, so my, um, I, I started 30 years ago in, in the fire service. And there were, there were 32 members on my department when I started. 30 years later, we're down to 16 members. So staffing is one of our big issues. We still um, handle EMS calls. We still handle uh, fire calls. We still handle the hazardous materials call. But we've had to expand out and we've created partnerships now. Um, our hazardous materials team, we um, have members from West Virginia on our team now to make up a 30 member team, including my 16. So we've, we, we've had to um, reach out and, and work with others a lot more now than we have in, in, in the past. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you both. Tom, back to you. Yeah, thank you. Did you want to comment on the last uh, observation and respond to the Senator's uh, uh, inquiry? Thank you, Governor. Yes, yes, I would. I think it would be important to that through the eyes of a state EMS office, we're seeing it, what you described manifested in two ways. Number one, for the four out of five state EMS offices housed in their state public health agency, have suffered along with their public health counterparts as budget cuts and, and constraints go on resource availability. Number two is a growing concern, especially in the last three to four months about how to balance the necessity of especially local public health uh, agencies who need manpower they need vaccinators, they need observers, they need contact tracers, and oh look, here's a local ambulance service, uh, you know, and, and wants to sort of adopt them for their core public health purposes. And the challenge then becomes, well, who's gonna respond to the next 911 call? So it manifests itself at both the state and local levels in, in our perspective. Very helpful, thank you as well. Yeah, very helpful. Uh, Jim Greenwood. Jim? Thank you. Um, I'm going to address this to uh, Ms. Gaynor. Do you have a, a rough idea of what percentage of Americans rely on or can rely on a, a fully paid city municipally funded um, uh, EMS service versus you know, 
private companies versus volunteer companies? It's a very good question, Mr. Commissioner. When we did our last significant canvassing of the mosaic of EMS systems that exist in this country, we stopped at counting the types based on their capacity. Do they respond to 911 calls? Yes or no. If they respond to 911 calls, can they transport patients? Yes or no. Uh, we did not attempt to get into the differentiation among service types, fire, hospital-based, community-based non-fire, private for-profit, all of which may function on equal footing in four side-by-side -side counties in exactly the same capacity, even though they have four completely different business constructs. Mm -hmm. It has been elusive to, do, to build a proper classification of those agency types for us to quantify the answer to your question. Okay. Would I be right in assuming that each of those though, regardless of what their configuration is, um, is they must abide by, minimally abide by the standards of the National Highway uh, Traffic Safety Administration. Is that correct? No, Mr. Commissioner, they must abide by the rules, regulations and statutes of their state. NHTSA, okay. genera NHTSA generates resources that states may use to establish minimum standards uh, national education standards, national EMS scope of practice model are two examples. Uh, but NHTSA has no regulatory authority over EMS systems at the local level. Uh, that, that power resides exclusively with the states. Okay, so they can suggest standards. They might have a model set of standards, but it's the state. And, and is there great diversification among the states? And um, I, you, you wouldn't do this in public probably, but would you, you be able to say some states are more lax than others in terms of the standards that they impose upon their EMS services? State EMS offices have made considerable strides in standardizing approaches to EMS agency regulation and specifically EMS personnel regulation that I, I neglected to thank Senator Lieberman actually uh, for an effort in 2011 uh, to protect Department of Homeland Security EMTs and paramedics to assure that they were functioning legally wherever they were in the United States. And the states developed collectively, uh, thanks to the Department of Homeland Security, an interstate compact for EMS personnel licensure. And 22 states have enacted that legislation. And that interstate compact sets a minimum standard for what each state must hold the EMS personnel accountable to in order to enter into the compact. So on the EMS personnel side, thanks to the compact, especially as we get more than 22 states to enact it, uh, approach much, have, have approached much greater standardization for personnel regulation than for agency regulation. I don't know if you were listening to the um, previous panel, but one of the uh, points that I raised there was that in the roundtable that the commission um, uh, convened, uh, there was strong um, recommendation from the EMS folks that they wanted to have federal grants, federal standards, federal advocacy um, uh, and, and information. Um, would you have concerns, any concerns about the federal government stepping in and setting a, a, 
uh, a nationwide set of standards um, that would be essentially over at least be a, a floor um, by, below which the states couldn't go. That would be, uh, Mr. Commissioner, a very um, intense and important conversation to be had in the spirit of federalism. And I mean that in the true definition of the word uh, and the balance of powers, authorities and duties of the federal government with the states, not versus the states. Yeah. And that's sort of what I was trying to get to earlier today is to, to what extent it would feel like support to what it's, to extent it would feel like heavy handed mandates that uh, perhaps some of the volunteer units and so forth could not reasonably um, uh, live up to. And if I may, that's exactly where the state's knowledge about every one of their local EMS agencies and how fragile they are or how vulnerable they are or the challenges that are presented with volunteers or low frequency call volumes, financial stability come in. That's, that's where the state's expertise lies yeah. and could best, if you will, offset or help protect any advancement of federal authority from becoming overreaching, overbearing, let alone possibly traversing into an area of the state's rights. And we have this sort of age old issue is if the federal government provides the money, then the federal government uh, may want put some strings on that money. Whereas if the states, uh, speaking of federalism, if you left this all at the state level, and then you see that states are inadequately funding some of their uh, squads, then you know you, ha you have that problem again. And let me ask Chief, how, how would you feel, sir, if, um, how, how would you look upon uh, an appropriate federal role um, that would uh, provide grants, perhaps information, advocacy, and perhaps standards? Uh, we, we kind of follow standards right now through the National Fire Protection Association, even though it's not a federal agency. Uh, we, we do follow standards, try to follow standards set by them. Of course, it, it's economically impossible to follow all their standards. Um, and we, we do follow some federal standards because we do apply for FEMA grants. And there are standards tied with those grants that we must follow. So we're kind of doing that right now. Um, but I, I agree with Ms. Gaynor that I, I believe it should be kept up to the states. They know what's happening in their states. They know what their states are, are capable of. Um, it's just find a way to, you know, maybe the, the federal government can fund states and, and let the states trickle down to us. Uh, I'm not sure. Thank you. Those are all my questions, Governor. Uh, thank you, Jimmy. Can I have a follow-up? Yeah, Absolutely, Donna. Yeah, just a quick question about dispatchers. Um, uh, in some states, they're first responders. In some states, they're not. Um, there is some national legislation which has never gone anyplace. There's a lot of turnover on dispatchers. They're under a lot of pressure, as you well know. Do you have a view on whether dispatchers ought to be first uh, in the category of first responders? Is who, who are you directing the question to? <laughs> you can, both of you can answer it. Go ahead, Ms. Gaynor. 
Oh, thank you, sir. Well, first I'll reveal my bias that for four years I worked for the state of Maryland dispatching their medical uh, medevac helicopters. Uh, so having served in, in that kind of role, although not a conventional 911 environment, I will say they are no less a first responder than any other uniformed badged individual who appears at a scene. They are dispatch life support, the instructions they give, the intensity of the scenarios they endure is nothing short of experiencing patient care in person. I hope that suffices. It does. Uh, Representative Torres has a bill, um, an, a federal bill to uh, make dispatchers uh, first responders because it's so uneven around the country. So you basically would support that kind of I, I, I cannot envision a scenario of opposing that. Thank you. Ms. Gaynor, did you send that question to Secretary Shalala? <laughs> it no, seemed no. like a beautiful setup. No, actually, uh, actually, I'm a co-sponsor of that legislation and I ah. just wanted to put it on the record. Well, I'll tell you what, all you need is just uh, Ms. Gaynor's response. It wouldn't need any other, uh, any other testimony. You said it all. That was about as powerful a response to any inquiry we've given anybody at any time. Thank you for that perspective. Having lived it and felt it, and you know it. So I also appreciated the conversation around uh, federalism, federal mandates and the like. I just one one-off observation. The one thing the government governors don't care for are federal mandates without the money. Yeah. And we, do, we used to get those from time to time as well. Uh, I wanna ask, uh, we have several ex officio members of the, of the, uh, the commission listen, take notes and contribute. We have a little extra time. I wanna ask any of my colleagues who joined us today. Yeah, Asha. Before we go to the ex officios, could we let um, Ken answer, ask some questions? Ken yes. Wayne. Whom? Oh, Ken. Ken. Oh my goodness. Out of sight, out of mind. Oh, don't forget about me. Oh, apologies. <laughs> oh, Ken. I'm feeling ignored here, Governor. the balance of the time. Okay. Thanks, Settle in. I've got about two hours of questions here. Um, no, just actually, uh, first, just want to say, Chief Jones and uh, Kander, thank you so much for these presentations. They've been very informative. I actually just have one question, one follow-up for you, Ms. Gaynor. Um, you alluded to a situation when you were talking, I think, with Senator Daschle about the issue of communication and being involved in decision-making, et cetera. And you talked about the NGOs being sort of intentionally shut out of the process. Um, and having the communication sort of cut off until after everything was fully baked. Um, that just, uh, that piqued my interest. What, what exactly are you referring to? What kind of sort of communication block is put in place and, and what would be the basis for that? And why do you think that still exists even uh, now in the face of all the evidence that we need integration, not the opposite? Um, thank you, Mr. Commissioner. The, the, the question, or rather my response, is grounded in the prior administration, and perhaps things will change, but I've not seen evidence of it yet. Uh, but the, the Healthcare Resiliency Working Group under HHS, so jointly operated by HHS and FEMA, was, as we were instructed, sort of off limits. Now, if that's changed, we haven't learned about it since January 20th. Uh, but nonetheless, not having the opportunity to speak from the real life sort of non-federal world seemed imbalanced uh, mm -hmm. to us. Was there a stated reason for that? 
uh, that our organization was not federal. Okay, just just simply that. <laughs> they were keeping it to the federal players, not the NGOs. Okay. And and prior to that, had you been um, have you been given a, a, a place at the table? Those? Yes, there there had been uh, a, a inclusion on listservs, uh, the mm -hmm. contact, the connection information for meetings that uh, I I could join freely and and not be questioned, and then a door shut. Got it. Okay. All right. Thanks very much for that, Governor. Well, with apologies, look, there's plenty more time. I feel bad about this. Continue. All right, thanks, Ken. I'm totally fine. Thank you. All right. Asha, any of our other colleagues care to make inquiries of this panel? This is Jerry Parker. One, one comment, I thought a comment that came up that's very, very important, and that's the champion for emergency EMS in the federal government. And it, I, that's just something I think we need to you know, work on. And that gets the HHS, Department of Transportation, you know, who has been the champion of of EMS at the federal level. And that was brought up in the dialogue. I mean, I, th I think he asked a good question, but who is the champion for EMS at, at, at the federal level? Who's your Well, I think that was the point. <laughs> right? <laughs> the, the, who, and it really is DOT, is it, should it be HHS ASPR? I mean, there's, um, uh, so I think that's just, you know, it's a question I think is gonna require some, for us to unpack that more. And we had some good conversation, there, there was some good, comments about that during this panel. And one of the panelists may want to echo that if you if you would. I'm happy to respond cautiously. Uh, I'll begin by talking about a very special population that EMS encounters uh, over a million times a year, and that's children who are experiencing severe uh, medical emergencies or trauma. Trauma is the leading cause of death for children in, in above age one in the United States. And the US Department of Health and Human Services, um, uh, Human Resources Services Administration, or I'm sorry, Health Resources Services Administration has a dedicated EMS for Children program uh, that focuses on research uh, operations, support to state EMS offices uh, for the purposes of advancing pediatric care capabilities in local EMS agencies and in hospital emergency departments. I would be remiss if I didn't raise that very important longstanding program that Senator Inouye uh, helped establish uh, decades ago that has made a, a tangible difference in the care of children in the back of an ambulance. Uh, as to champion, uh, clearly, the U.S. Department of Transportation, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Office of Emergency Medical Services devotes their time 100% to EMS, as their name implies, largely because the clock is the severely injured motor vehicle-related crash victim's biggest enemy. And the quality of care that EMS provides to the motor vehicle-related incident crash victim will make or break their outcome. So it's understandable that they do, but that's trauma and motor vehicle crashes. We, we got a lot else going on. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Thank you. That, that was a phenomenal answer. Uh, we got HHS for children, DOT for trauma victims and accidents, but there are other, other areas we you probably need other champions, but we'll, we'll continue that conversation internally. Ms. Gaynor. Well, on behalf of uh, the commission, we want to thank you not just for your testimony today, but uh, 
uh, a lifetime of service uh, to your communities and to your country in such a critical capacity. And uh, we wish you continued uh, good health. Uh, we know you'll uh, sustain your, that professionalism and that commitment to service you've demonstrated throughout your life. So thank you very much for uh, sharing these. Yeah. With it. Don't be surprised we get back at you. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank for you for the warning, Governor. Thanks very much uh, for being with us. The overall uh, focus subject matter of this uh, meeting is uh, holding the line on biodefense, supporting first response to large-scale uh, biological defense, including obviously infectious disease um, outbreaks, epidemics, and pandemics. Um, this is, uh, you're the third panel we've had today uh, and I'm sure you will build on what the other two have done. It just uh, shows us the truth of the um, uh, old maxim that it, uh, uh, there's no substitute for talking to people who are on the ground with experience, particularly if you happen to be making policy or trying to help make it in Washington. So uh, we, uh, we're very happy to have you here uh, with that perspective. And uh, uh, Ms. Bertram? Uh, as Executive Director of the Southeast Regional Emergency Services Authority, uh, I'd like to call on you first. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you about the impact of operational needs, training, and coordination of our resources during biological threats. Uh, the information I am providing uh, you with today reflects information obtained from a few of my colleagues across the country. Um, hold on just a second here. Uh, so that I could give you a greater perspective and reflection of this event other than my own personal experience. But within each state, the PSAPs at all levels experienced a different set of successes and frustrations, and they adjusted to those obstacles that they encountered in different ways. I will be speaking specifically in regards to the 911 field today Although I just want to reaffirm that some PSAPs experienced this past year very differently than others, and not all of them are reflected in this discussion. So when the realization that we were in a pandemic first occurred, there seemed to be minimal coordination at any level for the dispatchers. As the virus spread, agencies who were embedded with an emergency management were quickly able to address training needs coordinate a new or updated continuity of operations plan and implement backup plans if the bio threat shut down the dispatch center. These dispatch centers who worked with their emergency management departments set regular standards for workplace safety, handling exposures, creating social distancing protocols and installing social distancing protections while responding quickly with shared protocols to keep their environments clean. The agencies who worked within this partnership also reported that this team environment, there was also a close successful coordination with municipal and state partners for extended planning. Uh, even so, outside of that partnership and with the exception of CDC, there were no reports provided of any outreach directly from any federal entities to assist in the creation or implementation of the PSAP plans. 
for the other agencies without close working relationships of an emergency management department, the task of responding to the threat was more difficult. The state rules regarding stay home, stay safe, or lockdown orders changed regularly. No state government seemed to be responding exactly the same way to the crisis. So during this time, the network of 911 professionals responded to each other's using what they could find as a model protocol or procedures. Also during this time, the CDC was issuing guidelines that opposed the previous ones on a fairly regular basis, making it a challenge for the PSAPs to know how to address quarantining as staffing started to become a challenge due to sicknesses. And of note, some PSAP directors and managers were sent home by their authority boards, their counties or their cities because they were considered non-essential employees and those rapidly changing efforts had to be coordinated remotely. Uh, some of the hazard grant money that was made available to 911 centers was only available if the center was under authority of a law or fire agency. And so the independent 911 authorities had to wait for a language change to the um, grant to include them, or in some cases, they just missed the grant opportunities altogether. Uh, as new safety guidelines were being issued every day for weeks from different sources, the updates would be modified for safety controls inside the PSAP. A training for the dispatchers on how to clean their equipment every day seemed like it should be easy. Uh, it did become apparent quickly that some of the cleaning products that killed viruses also ruined keyboards and other electronic equipment. Uh, the wipe down had to be wet, but not too wet to hurt the electronics. And every surface had to be covered for the next person to sit in that chair and at that council, that position to be make sure it was a safe, clean environment. And the dispatchers answered calls for service also shifted the way they did that. This was a sustained change. In fact, both this and cleaning methods are still in place. New questions were to be asked initially on all of the medical calls, and then later it changed to include all calls for service. This was the best way we could keep our first responders safe by providing them with pre-knowledge about what they were walking into. And when planning for long-term mass casualty events, we are taught to prepare for the long haul, but we are not taught to prepare for months with the possibility of years. And the implication of the virus for the dispatchers was that not only were they concerned about the health of their family and the health of themselves, and if they were working in a safe environment, but they also had to remember a new way to do their job with a set of changing protocols for every call. And they were held responsible by some of the responders when that proper notification of the virus's present on scene was not received. And then when the virus was transmitted to them on scene, um, it seems perhaps that uh, as life critical as it was to ask callers these new set of questions about their health, how could that question be missed? But as we learned on September 11th, 2001, life went on. Regular calls for service not related to the virus continued to come in on 911. People still became very ill with non-COVID related illnesses. They still had fights with each other and crime still continued. So it was a challenge to add health questions to non-health calls, and it took time to get used to. 
there was very little time to address training on these new questions. The memos were sent out and that was all the training they received. Another unique challenge was the changing safety standards issued by the CDC on how long to quarantine and what the symptoms were of the virus. And it became a challenge to staff the dispatch centers because nearly every unwell symptom ended up being a symptom of the virus and the dispatchers had to stay home until they were tested. The length of time this went on was exhausting for the staff, constantly being tested, depleting their benefit time, um, working overtime with no clear indication of when the guidelines for exposures and quarantines would show consistency. Even with the release of the COVID shot, there are still no real answers on uh, when that's safe. And there are these are completely unique to anything we've ever seen before with the only previous virus really being the flu and the guidelines on that is pretty clear and simple. But federal support for the dispatch centers did occur. There was a lot of information floating around on federal websites. There were many avenues for the information to flow out. NASNA uh, was involved early during the pand pandemic and in getting information out to the 911 centers and bringing information back to federal agencies such as FEMA, FCC, and NHTSA. Uh, the problem was there just was no central place where dispatch centers knew where to look. And so they, they didn't, uh, other than the CDC website. Uh, the release of consistent guidelines and materials in one central repository would be extremely helpful in any kind of event such as this in future situations. And for my PSAP, where I work specifically, future mass casualty training for a pandemic type event uh, is difficult. We revised our COOP uh, early in the process and we did so in a generic manner so that it could be utilized for future events. It addresses everything from creating a clean work environment to um, what to do when you no longer have any dispatchers healthy enough to work. Annual mandatory review have been put in place on that policy so that it's required for each staff member to review it and be familiar with it. And the other changes are so fluid in a pandemic situation that it would be difficult to prepare for. So they can be addressed in the coop through the changing of general orders. That uh, concludes my presentation of the information. And I'll be open to any questions you may have. Uh, thanks uh, very much, uh, Ms. Bartram. Um, once again, really you've given us, me, a perspective from the point of view of the dispatchers that I, I, um, I hadn't understood. Uh, and you've also made some suggestions about how to remedy some of the problems. So I appreciate that a lot. And we will have questions. We're gonna go through the uh, rest of the panel now. Next is Rob Brown, who's uh, the interim uh, chief, Rob Brown is interim chief executive officer and executive director of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. So he brings the collective view of, uh, of our fire chiefs, which, is, which are very important to us. Uh, Chief, uh, it's all yours. Thank you, Senator. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Senator Lieberman um, and members of the commission. I am Fire Chief um, Rob Brown. Um, I am the interim CEO and executive director of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. 
Um, it's, a, it's an honor to lead this organization right now as I served on the other side as a member of the IAFC since 1987. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to meet with you today to discuss the operational needs, coordination training related to the response to COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the IAFC would, thanks, would like to thank the commission for the opportunity to brief them again. Previously, uh, Chief Keith Bryant, um, past IAFC president, and most recently U.S. Fire Administrator and retired fire chief from Oklahoma City testified before this panel. Um, the, right. IFC the IFC represents the leadership of uh, about 1.1 million firefighters um, and emergency responders um, nationwide. And um, we feel that we are the leading experts on uh, um, providing fire and rescue services. And we've been in existence since 1873. So I think we've uh, been around a while and we're getting ready to sit celebrate our 150th anniversary, so we're proud of that as well. When it comes to the uh, implications of the coronavirus on our nation's firefighters and paramedics, their families, and the communities they serve, um, the impact has been substantial. Uh, but like the hundreds of overwhelming curveballs that we've been thrown, in the, uh, thrown our way over the years, uh, the Fire and Rescue Service stepped up to the plate and hit the ball. Um, well, I'd like to say uh, to you now that uh, at our first at-bat, we hit it out of the park. We didn't, um, but we fell back on our training and our decades of experience in managing large, complex incidents, um, and we ate this elephant one bite at a time. Um, and what I'd like to talk to you today is about um, our successes, our challenges, and what we see for the future. The fire and EMS services uh, continue to serve um, uh, on the front lines even today at the tip of the spear of the response to the COVID pandemic. When this first began to impact our communities, much like other um, pandemic or epidemic situations we've faced, our people were already in the thick of it before a lot of the um, implications and challenges were even identified. So we were having not only to deal with the immediate problem before us, but the problem that was evolving within our organizations and our communities and those that had already been exposed. Um, for some background on what we do in the community from a fire and EMS standpoint, um, you know, we respond and treat patients at their home and offices and transport them to hospitals. There was a lot of focus early on about hospital workers and we love our hospital workers and, um, and that was an important part of it. But early on, we have paramedics that are out there on the street and much less controlled and sterile environments that were being exposed. In some cities like Plano, Texas, uh, the fire service stepped up to actually do the testing in the senior citizen centers um, so that uh, um, they could help control the virus and the, uh, the outbreaks in the long-term long care facilities. We support and facilitate uh, public vaccine campaigns. Uh, we work with public health to provide emergency medical support at testing centers, and in some areas, we've completely are managing the public vaccine effort. A good example would be the Orange County Fire Authority in California right now. Um, and of course, we also um, have programs in some of our fire departments that provide vaccine to homebound individuals and those that can't travel. Um, so we're not only just responding to emergencies, we're trying to be part of the solution to the problem as well. We suffered a pretty severe impact on our workforce, much like um, our 911 communications operators. Um, it, it's our mission um, to respond to emergencies. And, and, and through that mission, we know um, that we take inherent risk. And we did have numerous personnel that were exposed 
to the coronavirus. As of March 4th, we've been able to identify 166 total deaths reported that were directly due to COVID-19 complications with fire and EMS responders. 113 of those were fire personnel, 53 of those were EMS providers only. In addition, the exposure to fire and EMS personnel um, has led to widespread infections in our fire stations the need to, and the need to quarantine large numbers of personnel. In the early days before we were able to get good information, um, several communities were left without fire protection in many areas because of us having to close stations and quarantine people. That's what led our organization to stand up our operations center and began tracking and pushing out um, deconflicted information to the fire service so that they could make the best decisions possible on when to quarantine and how to continue um, to serve the public. Regardless though, the stress of responding to COVID-19 took its toll on our responders, just like it did on healthcare workers, other frontline workers um, and uh, um, other public safety workers that um, were not only part of the response, um, but had to worry about their families at home. Um, we all watched on TV, the doctors and people that uh, quarantined and, and trailers and things to, to stay um, away from their families and infecting their families. And that was a, a major impact on the fire and emergency medical services as well. When it comes to volunteer firefighters, which the majority of the firefighters in this nation are, um, that was a real stretch because these are people that weren't on duty. These are people we call to duty. Um, and oftentimes, you know, they were faced with the decision, do I respond and leave my family and risk the, uh, the um, situation of bringing back an infection? And if I do, um, how do we deal with that? Um, the volunteer fire service stepped up to the plate just like everyone else did. We didn't have any widespread walk-offs of people saying, I'm not going to volunteer. They all responded. But the effects on their families um, were real and they continue today. We had many financial setbacks. Obviously communities, when they're shut down, um, we rely on the tax base to pay the uh, expenses for public safety. And a lot of those were obviously um, impacting, um, the shutdown was impacting the ability for us to, um, to properly staff and run our departments. Um, we were challenged by the fact that the federal government um, allowed the states to set their own priorities. And so as we're trying to work with fire departments throughout the United States and our territories, uh, we were finding that some states were prioritizing public safety and firefighters, other states were not. Um, there was not enough equipment um, initially to meet the demand. We found ourselves having to um, uh, find unique ways to get protective clothing because in many states, fire and EMS was not made a priority to get the um, public, to get the protective clothing that was available. With the shortages, we often turn to purchasing um, protective equipment on the open market. And I can tell you from the International Fire Chief standpoint, we had to we didn't have to, but we entered into a deal with Amazon um, uh, who helped us you know, procure PPE and, for fire departments through um, uh, a private site so that they could get priority um, uh, access to um, disinfectants and PPE and other things such as that. When it came to the federal aid programs to help fire departments, um, one of the things that we found is that it was set up very well um, for the most part for what we do in our daily operations. 
but it really wasn't able to pivot the way we needed it to um, in an evolving uh, disaster such as this pandemic. Um, a lot of the programs that we live under um, have requirements that take um, a considerable amount of time to be able to move the money from the federal government to the local level. There are also um, matches, uh, uh, funding matches that are in place that just don't work during this time of disaster, especially when cities and counties are seeing their budgets cut. Um, where we, we were able through our government relations staff and the, and the United States Congress work to, uh, to get the money put in the budget. Uh, but again, the processes to getting it back out were cumbersome um, and changing the laws on the fly were difficult. Um, and that created a large lag in the ability for communities to access the funding. Um, good example, um, both the law enforcement side and the fire side were both funded um, for uh, COVID supplies. Uh, the funding had reached the local um, law enforcement agencies before we were ever even able to open up the application process for the fire service. And that was not because of uh, the career officials running the programs, it was because of the way the laws are set up and we needed a way to get in there and change those quickly and we still need to look at that. We have been successful throughout this in identifying several areas that Congress has been very willing to change um, and has changed and we feel like that we have, uh, um, have always been heard and we appreciate that, but there are many things that need to be addressed in the way that we respond to these pandemics. And there needs to be a national plan that stays in place and doesn't change from administration to administration. Some of the issues that we feel need to be looked at is we need a better warning um, uh, system for emerging, emerging diseases and the information about how to respond to them for those of us that are gonna be on the front lines. One of the things that was identified after the attacks of 9-11 was how out of the loop we were in the intelligence community, yet we're the ones out on the front lines. I think this is akin to that finding as well. Um, we're out on the front lines, but we need this information. We need it quickly. Uh, we need it accurately. Um, and we need to be part of that system that plans for those things. We need to better coordinate the federal supply pipeline of PPE to the states and localities and to improve the distribution plans. Um, you know, most of our time here at the IFC was, was taken up by trying to help fire chiefs find, find and access PPE. Um, we need to improve our nationwide mutual aid system. We've done very well. We've learned a lot over the last few years, but new systems need to be in, put in place that will allow us to address these um, challenges such as uh, we faced during the pandemic much quicker and a national system that actually tracks and helps us deploy those resources so that we have real-time information. Um, there's a need to update the National Incident Management System. The National Incident Management System is designed as an all-hazards um, system and it works very well for short and even you know, what I would call short-range disasters. But we get into long-term uh, disaster situations such as the pandemic um, there needs to be much more training in the other agencies um, to be able to support us. Um, and lastly, we really need to improve um, the reimbursement process, especially through the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Uh, we found several choke points, as I um, alluded to earlier, that stopped us from being able to get the money out to where it was needed. 
And quite frankly, um, a lot of the money that was left unused was left unused because it became available after the need had already passed. With that, I would like to thank you for your time today um, and to discuss the challenges that we face during the COVID-19 response. And as we continue to respond and recover um, and share the lessons that, that we have learned with you in hopes that it will help um, now and with any future pandemics. Uh, the America's Fire and EMS personnel, I think, proved that we're there to help. We've stood, we stood up um, and uh, we've partnered with um, our federal agencies and um, our uh, U.S. Congress and, and the White House to get the, uh, to be on the front lines to get things done as needed. Um, but we need to make sure that in the, in, the, in the future, we have the supplies and training necessary to carry out that mission faster um, and more effectively. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chief. That was, uh, that was really helpful. Um, your, your stories of what, uh, what the uh, uh, Chiefs experienced um, in response to the COVID-19 was, was quite um, uh, compelling. And I appreciate the fact that um, you offered some specific ideas. I just want to draw out two things you said, uh, which have been reflected somewhat in the work of this commission from the beginning. And then also to me is one of the responses uh, to the last year. And part of it is that when you have a, a big national raging uh, challenge like the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you, you absolutely require a str strong federal um, con um, collaborating, co coordinating leadership role. When you, when, you, when you yield to the states of locals, they're going to compete. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just not going to work. And, and we have to take that away. The second is really uh, also so clear, but you made it clearer, which is that um, this... Uh, pandemic had uh, really devastating effects on the economy and on the uh, ability, capacity of state and local governments to finance the services that people were demanding or are needing in increasing amounts because of the public health crisis. And that's, uh, that's a problem that once again, uh, the federal government has to uh, uh, step in and help with. Really, it's the only one that can do that. And uh, it's why I think um, uh, the, the parts of the COVID-19 relief bill that recently was adopted uh, that provide state and local assistance uh, were really important to include. And even though the bill itself unfortunately turned out to be partisan in support, um, some of the original work on state and local assistance idea was done in a very bipartisan way, certainly in the Senate, I believe in the House too, but I know in the Senate it started with a bill put in by um, Senator Menendez of New Jersey, who's a Democrat, and Senator uh, Cassidy of Louisiana, who's a Republican. So your, your testimony really speaks loudly uh, to those two lessons that hopefully we've learned. And it seems now, at least on the monetary side, uh, the federal government is responding to both sides, really, uh, a strong federal leadership and support from Washington for state and local governments. Uh, and I hope it gets to you and your people at the local level who need it. Chief uh, Francisco is the chief of police of the Navajo Police Department. We've really tried very hard here on this commission to um, always say, 
state, local, and tribal, also territorial, but governments. And so uh, we're, we're very um, grateful that you could be with us, and uh, we look forward to your testimony now. Oh, good afternoon. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, so I'm Chief Philip Francisco, the Chief of Police for the Navajo, police, or Navajo Tribe. Um, we're the largest uh, Native American tribe in the United States by far, uh, probably double the size of any uh, of the other smaller tribes. So we kind of lead the nation in policy and different things because we're so large. We have 27,000 square miles of reservation territory, and dispersed in that is about 180,000 residents on the reservation. Um, so like many law enforcement uh, entities uh, dealing with COVID, we were not really prepared for this. So a lot of the things that we had to, were asked to do were, were very unique. Uh, a lot of health orders, a lot of curfews were put in place to try to curb the spread of COVID and they lead the law enforcement to, to do that, um, which is very hard to do because we have a, a very small amount of police officers to police uh, our area as it is. And we're very taxed with those things. And to add more duties such as you know curfews and checkpoints and things that we are trying to to try to slow the spread of COVID uh, was very difficult to really put our officers at in a, a really hard spot. Uh, the things that I've seen that were a little bit difficult is we had a lot of advisement from our health professionals coordinating things um, about how well, people are supposed to stay home. We need to follow these procedures, but there wasn't a whole lot of thought of how uh, first responders were to take care of themselves. So. A lot of the curfews and things we couldn't, um, you know, comply with because we had to be out there every single day. A lot of the, the orders, you know, how to take care of yourself, quarantining even um, was difficult because we still had to have our officers available on the street. So it was really difficult to balance keeping our officers available for emergencies, uh, just like fire and EMS was. They still have to respond to these things, but yet keep them available, safe and healthy to be able to do that while doing extra duty. So. There was not a whole lot of thought from our health professionals on the, the reservation because they were thinking about how do we protect our citizens, but they weren't really thinking how does this affect law enforcement or our uh, first responders. So that was very difficult. Uh, the other thing is there was a disconnect between uh, what the health orders and different things were put in by our health professionals who are good and they're trying to do what they can to curb a, a, a pandemic, but they didn't realize the limitations of law enforcement, uh, laws that are available, you know, there wasn't curfew laws in some places. I think it's across the United States. There wasn't a lot of things. They say you've got to be inside. But what? How are we going to enforce this? Is there laws in place? So there's not a whole lot of thought of, of that. So I think that's something we have to look at as a nation. Is there something uniform that our officers can actually enforce? Is it going to be citations? Is it going to be, you know, we're going to fine you or we can take you to jail if you're violating these things? There wasn't really consistency across the United States. And they're actually on the reservation. There wasn't anything in place to actually do. So we had to do some creative uh, working with our prosecutors to see how we can, you know, basically enforce these curfews and different things. Uh, and our lawmakers have to be involved in it also. Our legislators for here, we have council delegates. We have a legislative branch on the, the reservation. And they're trying to put things in place to limit visit visitors to the, the tribe, yet they didn't really have an enforcement mechanism. So that was difficult. Um, I think the fire... Fire Chief talked about you know procurement of PPE. We were way behind on that. It took us months and months and months to get even simple PPE and sanitizing equipment for our officers to the point to where we use our own budget uh, that was for overtime and normal things for operation to just get that to our officers because they needed to be out in the field and waiting months and months and months for money from the federal government or even our, our local government to be in place. 
And the other thing is, you know, the government was shutting down for the reservation. They shut down everything besides essential services, which is law enforcement. So you had the people that process the paperwork, procurement, um, buying property, were all out of the office. So we had to find unique ways to get this PPE. Sometimes through donations, we worked with private entities directly. Um, and we actually had, you know, a huge network of trying to find just the simple stuff and supply was difficult. Um, the other part is coordinating with their health professionals. They were prioritizing uh, the health professionals, which they needed to be. Um, but we were kind of last on the list for PPE, even though we, as a law enforcement, we didn't have the luxury of being in a controlled environment. They were out there, um, you know, fighting with people, getting PPE ripped off. They had to replace it at a higher rate than our health professionals did in the uh, the hospitals where it's controlled, they can, you know, change out PPE, but we were given PPE at a lower rate. So I think there's some considerations uh, for how law enforcement and first responders are different from our health professionals and the public, and that has to be taken into account. Um, we had to actually do our own uh, internal um, incident command system separate from our health professionals because we had, we were so getting information so behind the curve that we had to make up some of our protective stuff. So we had to look at CDC guidelines directly and try to make a policy and procedure and train our officers what to do because we were getting information so lagged from our health professionals that we had to be very creative. And I think this is kind of the same thing that happened to a lot of our uh, other police departments across the United States is that we had to be very creative because we didn't have the luxury of waiting around getting you know, policy from somewhere we had to be out there and fail and we had to protect our officers now because it was life and death. If we have officers off of the, the street, then we can't respond to calls. Um, so those are just some of the challenges we had. Um, the other thing that really was difficult is, you know, making sure our officers were motivated and voluntarily going out there because there, there was a concern from, especially our corrections, they didn't want to come to work. They didn't want to be in an environment with uh, people that could be positive. Uh, and get themselves sick. And then again, I think the fire chief put on it was their families, taking it home to their families. So we had to find housing for officers that were not going home. So they didn't have to bring it home to their families. We had to figure out testing procedures every five days, uh, you know, so they would be clear to come back to work. So there was a lot of things that we, we had to really be creative very quickly, but I think we were successful in the end. Um, but it really, we had to take the frontline approach to it and just kind of go with the punches and make the stuff as we go along rather than we didn't have the luxury of waiting. So that's kind of my perspective of how, you know, first responders and especially the tribal environment, uh, the tribal Navajo Nation tribe was like hit the hardest in the United States as far as deaths and cases for a while. So we were really pushing forward on the front, front lines to make sure we're figuring out ways with our health professionals to uh, stop the spread, which included some creative things like checkpoints, educational checkpoints, uh, you know, stopping visitors coming and going, uh, curfew violations, and things like that. And I think it did kind of slow things down. It was really about education to our public uh, was what really we pushed in the end. So um, I'm here for questions. If there's any more questions, I know that was pretty quick, but there wasn't a lot going on here. I mean, um, that's kind of what I was seeing as far as coordination and what our failures were and where we can improve on. Uh, that's great, Chief. Very helpful, and thanks. Right, right to the point. Um, I'm going to yield to uh, Governor Ridge, who I know uh, can't stay uh, for the whole session, but we'll stay a while more. Governor Ridge, all yours. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Chief Francisco, uh, thank you for your testimony. I'm interested, uh, this is a third panel where we've heard a uh, concern expressed about information lag time 
not only in, in many different forms. And the question I have for you, the first question I have for you, was the information lag time, the kind of information you would have expected to receive uh, promptly from uh, public health officials? Or uh, is there another gap in the kind of information you needed to receive? Well, the I think you needed to do your job more effectively that lagged behind what was ultimately the source of that information you wish could, you could have received in a more timely basis. Um, so we were kind of getting it filtered through our health professionals here at a local level and they were getting it from the CDC. So I think cutting out that middle where it can go directly to law enforcement would have been more efficient. Uh, you know, there was some misinformation on, on, you know, incubation times and how long did you be quarantined? But there was no direct information. I think that's the biggest thing. There was no direct information how law enforcement needed to quarantine versus the public because they were giving information about you need to be out for this many days before you can come back to work. Yet we had people that needed to come back earlier that were just only exposed, limited, and they're coming out with negative tests. But if they were told to stay home for 14 days, because this is like the standard information that was given by the health professionals to the public, uh, just to be safe. But we wouldn't have that luxury. So we had to get directly things from CDC uh, was much quicker you know, from the website, not from the, their mouse, rather than our local health professionals in the hospital. So I think that was our lag time. Okay, that's, that's helpful. Let me ask you this, even pre-COVID, what has been your experience? You've got a unique role, a unique population, but not so unique so that on a regular basis, you should be involved in statewide training exercises, you should be involved in uh, contingency planning. Are you part of those normal activities? Um, in terms we're of- We're very large here, so it's a very difficult question. We have three Pardon me? Um, so it was, we, we, we do participate as much as we can, but obviously we have three states to deal with. We have 33 different counties. So to be involved directly with every single entity we deal with, it's difficult for us because basically we're basically the size of a state or most states. So it's very difficult for us to communicate with every single law enforcement agency, every single emergency management uh, entity in our area because we're just so huge. We don't have the staff to do that. So that's our, our challenge is how do we communicate and have plan for mass casualties or anything else with so many different partners for our reservation specifically. We're pretty unique in that aspect because we have so many and we have uh, federal partners, we have the FBI, we have the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So uh, it's a difficult task for us to manage, even pre-COVID, uh, for any kind of emergency. Was, was the Indian health systems, per se, helpful in terms of getting information down to you on a timely basis? Or did you have to rely on more traditional public health services? Um, for the first few months, it was difficult to get anything before they got coordinated. It took them a while to get organized. And I think that was our lag time also, because even at the local level, getting Indian health uh, entities to coordinate and get a good information system out took several months. So that was our lag time, just trying to get our stuff going. Um, but after they got going, I think they started getting uh, uh, their system together very well and became efficient near the end. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think they had to create it as they were going also. All right, thank you. Uh, Ms. Bertram, uh, you talked about uh, developing a, a continuity of operations plan almost on the run in response to the pandemic. Uh, I guess I would have anticipated given the critical services that you provide 
that historically you'd be involved in the development of CONOPS plans on a regular basis. Was it unique, uh, this unique COVID environment that required a different CONOP uh, continuity of operations plan? Or do you feel that you have been somewhat neglected in those kind of training exercises that, that should be going on on a regular basis within individual states? No, I think for us, it was unique because we've addressed those kind of operations, but more on a disaster. Um, you know, if, our, if we had a fiber cut, if our uh, PSAP was destroyed, we don't have anything that addressed if a virus took us out, no biological threat. We, we have never developed anything like that. So this was new. But basically a case of first impression. Uh, lessons learned, hopefully to be applied in the future? Yes. Okay, and what might they be? If you're gonna say the two lessons from your perspective uh, that you've learned through this experience uh, during the past two years to apply to the, your group you represent, what would they be? Uh, well, certainly you should have a coup uh, ready that, doesn't, that addresses more than just what happens if your PSAP is destroyed. Um, Knowing what you're going to do if, if even just a, a sickness or, um, you know, maybe even a, a, a death wipes out your center and you have to do something else, you need to have plans like that in place. So I would say uh, having that and um, start. yeah, having, having probably, probably teaching people the other places to look for resources. Um, you know, NHTSA had great resources on their website, but it's just not well known. Nobody would think to look on a traffic safety website for um, that kind of information. Well, I thank you for that. You know, I want to ask uh, Chief Brown a question because it's fairly similar to what you've just observed. It took a while to get the information. You had to search for it. There was no central, uh, centralized effort to get you the kind of information you needed to respond. And I was taken by Chief Brown's observation that uh, it took a long time to get the PPE. Uh, and in some instances, by the time the resources trickled down to law enforcement, uh, the need had been met by secondary or other sources and so those funds remained unused. So you had to scramble to meet the need. And by the time the money got to you, uh, that need was gone. Uh, so from your perspective, uh, understanding better than I do the mechanics of the delay in getting those dollars down to you, how would you improve that system so you didn't have to scramble at the last minute to get resources to, to fill those needs? Do you have any recommendations there? Absolutely, Governor. I appreciate the question. We uh, we have looked at um, and um, have gone over what has occurred, and, and I believe that you know, most of uh, of our issues deal with having some ability within the federal government or, or within the federal agency to be able to waive certain requirements that should be in place during normal operations, but must be immediately removed when you go into disaster operations. Any of and anybody that's been on the front line of a disaster knows that you make decisions very quickly and you live or die by the resources you have. 
Um, and oftentimes, uh, the, not just the federal government, but all governments are set up with, with barriers in place for good reason that need to be removed. We, we, we need to find a way and we have, a, we have identified needs um, as to where those barriers need to be removed. Um, we, we need to um, open up the, the, the disaster response funding um, so that more people can access and understand access. One of the things that we figured uh, or that we found is that, you know, in, in the United States, a lot of fire and emergency medical services are provided by special districts. Well, if you're a special district, you can't directly access those funds. You have to go to your county government to get those funds. And in a lot of cases, the county government said, we're not sharing those funds with you. We're using them for county functions. And so they were completely locked out of being able to access funds. And some of these special districts are very large. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know, but the Los Angeles County Fire Department is actually a large fire protection district and an amalgamation of several things. So it's not just small rural areas we're talking about. We're talking about major metropolitan areas that are challenged by some of the laws that are in place. So um, to answer your question, we've developed a comprehensive list of recommendations that we would like to uh, to submit to Congress that should be looked at for the future. I would ask uh, just my final question back to Chief uh, Francisco. Uh, the, you heard uh, the Chief's uh, uh, concern with regard to access to those resources. So a two-part question. One, do you feel like you had equal access to those resources? And uh, do you have any, uh, I guess I'd like to see Chief Brown if you, if uh, Chief Francisco could take a look at your list to see if he could add anything that they might need because of the special needs given the, the native tribes that should be a, can't be ignored any longer either. Uh, Chief Francisco, any comments you'd like to make? Um, yeah, I mean, so it was very difficult to get, you know, any kind of equipment. I think having a fund available for emergencies where line officers or, you know, police departments on the front lines can access that very quickly, maybe even some kind of fund that they use only for emergencies rather than go through the whole process of getting the, uh, you know, the funds filtered through all the way to the bottom, going through the whole government, the state government, federal government, uh, you know, having that access accessible right then and there during emergency and then waiving those procurement, you know, because usually it's three quotes, you have to go through all this whole process, you know, just to be able to get that equipment in the hands of officers. Because this, it's, it's a safety thing. Officers have to work and firefighters have to work. EMS have to be there. They don't have the luxury of waiting and going through that process. So having that available, I think would make things much efficient in any kind of large scale, scale emergency. And I think that's a good recommendation uh, for sure. Well, that I guess one of our challenges. Yeah, uh, the country's original citizens have been hit especially hard during this pandemic. And I'd like to think that uh, your law enforcement community has the same access to both in terms of uh, dollars and time as the broader law enforcement community has across the country. And I'm just going to ask you, uh, Chief Brown, if you'd be kind enough to share your recommendations uh, to Chief uh, Francisco to see whether or not it's consistent with his experience so that uh, the recommendations you send to the Hill can be applied across the board. We certainly will, um, and I want to I want to mention one other thing that I think is important. The commission is that some of this also um, was a lack of understanding because when it comes when it becomes a public health emergency, I think a lot of people don't really wrap their head around who all that means. 
And a lot of times in some states, they said, well, we will, we will make sure that the paramedics are priority one, but the firefighters and the police officers are going to be priority two. And it's like, you don't understand. They're right beside us all the way. They're right in the thick of it. You can't just say the paramedic gets it, but the poor firefighter and law enforcement officer there with them doesn't get it. And I think those are some of the understandings that we're going to hopefully have to institutionalize um, as we go forward so that those are not forgotten. Yeah, just to compliment you, Chief, I, a lot of lessons learned, some of them hard, some of them are harsh, uh, but uh, I don't think this is the last pandemic this country's gonna confront. So uh, let's uh, take these hard lessons and make sure that we're in a better position to respond. Uh, I thank you, all three of you, for your continued service to your communities and uh, yield back the overextended use of my time to my friend, Senator Lieberman. Uh, thanks, Governor. It was well used. Well done. Be well. Stay well. Uh, Senator Daschle, I'm, I'm going to follow Governor Ridge's example and call on the uh, rest of the members of the commission before I ask my questions. Even the occasionally overlooked Ken Weinstein. Well, Joe, thank you. <laughs> and I'd almost feel I should yield to Ken Weinstein. <laughs> yeah, I feel a little sorry for myself here. <laughs> and I'll just avail myself of the opportunity. Getting a complex. Keep my, <laughs> keep my questions uh, relatively brief, but I'm struck by something by each of your just remarkable presentations. Uh, each of you gave me a, a new appreciation of just the tremendous demands that are put upon your, uh, your, your people uh, under these circumstances, not only do you deal with all of the, the, the normal crises that we face in communities across the country on a daily basis, but you had to double that with COVID over this last year. And that leads me to ask the question, so how do you address fatigue, burnout, uh, just the, uh, the need for, for training uh, when you get attrition? You've gotta have attrition uh, at levels that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise experienced, but how much of that fatigue and burnout has, has been a factor over this past year? And what, if anything, do you think the federal government can do to address or help you address that enormous uh, amount of, of, of new challenge that you've got layered on everything else with what I anticipate is probably higher uh, attrition than you've had before and the need for more training? If, would you mind? I'd like each of you to respond, if you would. Maybe with you, Mr. Brown, first. Thank you. So I, I would say it's education and training is 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 what is needed, and actually, um, good information. It goes back to we don't expect anyone to know everything there is to know about an evolving virus, but we need to be part of that solution as they get that information, so that we can even adjust the training that we're currently giving. So I think that's important before we even talk about additional education and training, but additional education and training will be needed um, as will funding in some areas where staffing is cut because of impacts to the local economy. When we talk about burnout, a lot of our firefighters and paramedics that are out there, um, they rise to the challenge and they do get burned out and, and it's, it's no different than a, a bad wildfire season. We, we cope with it and we learn to cope with it and we have ways to do that. But when we start cutting the number of people, that's where it starts to get 
to the dangerous level where um, people are put in positions of working so many hours that um, it becomes a safety issue. And so that's where funding is needed for staffing and programs that can help um, in the short term while we weather the storm. Thank you. Chief Francisco? Um, so, you know, as law enforcement, I have probably a little different perspective. It seems there's a trend to really cut funding for most police departments across the nation completely. But, you know, I think for my department, I can speak that we're just barely keeping above water. So this kind of really exemplified even worse that, uh, you know, we're barely keeping uh, our, our make, making the needs met with what we have now. So cutting it further and then adding is really dangerous and adding more work, such as the pandemic, puts us on the edge. So I had to cut vacation time uh, completely for office for officers for a whole year. Um, they started losing vacation time because they couldn't use it. They accumulated so much. Uh, we actually had to put off our training academy because we had, didn't know how we could operate it in a COVID environment. Uh, halfway through the pandemic, we decided, you know, we can't wait. Uh, we're, we're having attrition rate and we have to move forward. So we had to find unique ways to actually put our academy on, uh, you know, doing testing and bringing them in, a closed environment. Uh, we had some success and some failures in that, but we have to move on. We can't put training and hiring on hold during this, these kinds of things because we're going to end up even further behind by the time this is done. So it's, it was very unique and adding, you know, the component of training and how do we respond to um, this kind of pandemic as far as operations on the, the lower level, as far as on the street was, was interesting. I mean, they did some very unique things uh, as officers. They used saran wrap and duct tape to you know, block off the back part of their patrol cars and they're taking people into to, uh, the jail. So that was unique that I didn't even think of. They were making their way, doing things on the ground. And these are the kind of things we probably need to plan for and make training for for officers in the future, because we're just talking about going to shootings, you know, dealing with mental health issues. We're not talking about viruses very much in the academy. So we have a need to, you know, train our training, change our training curriculum and environment for police officers and first responders in general. And the same thing with dispatchers. I mean, they weren't used to asking questions. We had to make up our own code to give out to uh, our officers when we knew there was a household that had COVID positive people. We had to be making code. Dispatchers had been you know, come up with a procedure to relay that out, out there to our officers. So um, really, we have to shore up our, our emergency public public emergency staff by adding more funding instead of taking away because we need that padding, you know, that leverage if something happens because it'll, it brings our, our, our resources down quite a bit when these kind of things happen. We lost a whole police district at one point from COVID. I actually lost an officer, one, one died from COVID. So those kind of things happen. And you, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to move forward. But if we had extra staff on, on standby, or at least the staff available, uh, we come out at the, the end better. So that would be my pitch is we need to be funded at a higher rate to give us more officers. Because doing less or doing more with less isn't going to work forever. We got to do have more. Well, that's very, very helpful. We thank you for your inspirational dedication and the ingenuity that uh, you've obviously demonstrated. Ms. Bartram? Well, I've listened to uh, Chief Brown and Chief Francisco. I, I uh, don't have anything as inspiring. Uh, you know, Dispatch 911 is federally classified as office and administrative support. And I see Chief Brown shaking his head. It is, uh, it is uh, just unacceptable that this uh, profession is still classified as admin and, and uh, uh, office support. 
um, and not where they should be. And I think that being classified in, in that category has caused, especially during this pandemic, it caused uh, problems. Um, as I mentioned, when I was speaking, uh, they, they missed out on some grant opportunities. There have been, uh, in my state anyway, I don't know about others, there's been problems with them getting workman's comp uh, because um, although certainly they're considered essential workers, they're not classified in the right place. So here uh, there has been lots of questions. They've really had to fight for it. Um, I think that would be something that would really be helpful if that could be addressed and, and changed. Uh, we didn't have here around us a, a big problem with attrition. Uh, we've we've uh, worked hard to address some of the peer support and the fatigue in our industry, but those those things just with our classification has hurt us. So, I didn't realize that there was that distinction and uh, that it had that kind of an implication. That's really remarkable. Thanks for sharing that with us, Joe. In the interest of time, I'll turn it back to you so you can call on others. Uh, thank you, Tom. Um, really uh, good questions and good answers. Uh, next, we'll go to uh, Secretary Shalala. Thank you very much. I know uh, Chief Francisco uh, needs to leave, so uh, let me uh, direct uh, the first question to him. Um, do you, did you uh, or do you meet regularly with the Department of Health? You're both in Window Rock, and I'm wondering whether um, you've been able to get some resources from them or to coordinate uh, with them. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we were attending their, their command meetings, um, you know, weekly. Uh, and just at some point we had to kind of start moving away. So I have one person just taking notes at this point because it's kind of become, you know, routine now. But we were up there every day uh, working with them directly, uh, fighting for resources, trying to, you know, pitch what's going on here, our limitations. So. There was that pretty good collaboration, but again, you know, there has to be some kind of, you know, can, looking at the different perspective of law enforcement a little bit differently from our health professionals. And I think that was the biggest challenge, the, the relay, hey, we have different, uh, you know, job duties, we have different limitations, there's laws. And so they weren't really familiar with law enforcement. So having a law enforcement liaison there to let them know what the limitations are, what can be done was really important, especially going through, um, all these changes in health orders they did and resources and vouching for our officers and our first responders. So we were doing that quite often. Yeah. And the Navajo Nation is about to get a huge amount of money under the American Rescue Act. Have you been having conversations with the governance uh, system about how much uh, you're going to be able to get in terms of personnel? Because it does provide money for um, for police and fire and uh, payroll and those kinds of things. Yeah, we're already starting that. And really infrastructure is where we're really hitting on. Uh, we have a little bit of reserve on money for, for officer pay. Um, a big part of this last whole thing was we actually were able to give hazard pay to our first responders and social workers uh, you know, to supplement because they were working, everybody else was off work getting paid, but we were required to work. So a lot of them got that. Um, so paying that and making sure that's put in their salary for all you know, dispatchers, everybody that's coming to work is required to come to work. So that was part of the conversation. We'll ask for that again. Um, you know, we do pitch for more resources. We needed buildings. Uh, buildings was a big thing. I mean, 
touch on this. When a building was, you know, contaminated, we had to shut the whole building down, but we didn't have a place to go. Dispatch was the same way. We had to move to a different facility. We had to borrow command vehicles from the Bureau of Indian Affairs to actually set up a place to operate. Uh, and then the infrastructure just to have that work uh, was interesting. And the part I didn't hit on and why I, I talk about in infrastructure is because we start relying just like the Zoom right here. Um, we're spread apart just three or four hours between our police districts in some cases. So how do you communicate effectively with your staff if you can't have in-person meetings uh, when there's no infrastructure to do video conference or it's lagging or it's unreliable, it makes communication even harder. So that's why we want to beef up our uh, you know, telecommunication infrastructure or internet infrastructure because we started relying on Zoom and and those kind of you know, technology to communicate and get things across and brief our officers. So that's why we want to make sure we have reliable uh, you know, infrastructure. So with that money that's going to be coming in, that's what we're pitching for. Thank you. Uh, Chief Brown, um, there is a lot of money that uh, has just been passed by the Congress um, are you giving any kind of advice or directive to the fire chiefs about accessing uh, those resources so that they can make infrastructure investments and other kinds of things to be ready the next time uh, we have uh, a crisis? Absolutely. Um, our association and in particular our government relations people have poured through um, the act and have made sure that we've identified, especially the non-traditional areas of funding so that we can bring that to the attention of our personnel. Uh, we're used to always going to that you know, um, uh, single trough that, of funds that are always there for us. But one of the things we've learned through the pandemic is that there's other funds that are available and we will um, make uh, that well known. But again, I wanna stress that some of it still, it flows in a way that a big portion of our um, services, special districts um, in particular, um, still can't access a lot of the money directly. Um, and that becomes a, a huge problem um, for those providers. Is that because it has to go through the states? Well, it goes to the states or to, and then it flows to the counties. Um, and since a special district is a quasi-governmental district that doesn't really tie to the county, it's self-governing, um, they fall through the cracks a lot of times. Yeah. Director Bartum, can uh, you comment on that? I, I think... Uh, most of the PSAPs that are part of fire departments or uh, law departments, they don't have any problem accessing funds either. When, the, when they were accessing those funds, they were usually accessed through their, their chiefs, uh, but they're um, like the 911 authorities, I think those would maybe similar to the fire districts and they kind of fell through the cracks in a lot of those uh, grants and the legislation uh, language and uh, it was difficult. It was difficult to to uh, get the money for the funding. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I yield back. Thanks, uh, Donna. Uh, Jim Greenwood. Thanks, Joe. Um, I want to direct a question to uh, Mr. Brown. I, I mentioned earlier this morning that my dad, way back when I was a kid, was the chief of the local what we called the rescue squad. Uh, but then he was also the chief of the volunteer fire company. And I recall the amount of you know, intense amount of training that both of the sets of volunteers had to do. It's just, you don't just jump in an ambulance and, and see what you can do. You don't just drive to a fire, you know, arrive at a fire and know what to do. It's a lot of training. More and more, it seems that the, that the emergency medical service and the fire services are combined. 
And my question is, are, are they all, is it often the case that it's the same people who, you know, if, if, if the call is for an ambulance, they jump in an ambulance, if there's a fire, they jump in a fire truck, or they, do they tend to be separate um, individuals? It, it, it's done many different ways, um, but in general, in the fire service, um, it is a, what's called cross-train uh, dual role. Um, when I started in 1981 as a firefighter paramedic, I was on an engine company that would respond to emergency medical calls, and I would perform as a paramedic, and I'd get back on the engine company and may go to a fire. Um, and so um, a bulk of the fire service is that way, but we also have the other models where you have a separate rescue squad, especially in the volunteer services, where you may have a volunteer fire company and a volunteer rescue squad that serve the community. And they work together, but they specialize in their own areas. So I think the, uh, um, the way we provide services is as diverse as our country. Um, mm -hmm. So there's really um, no one way of doing it, but the largest model in the fire service is called dual role cross-trained and they, do, they both do the same job. I think you commented to some extent on this, but to what extent, looking backwards, to what extent do you think the various fire services, whether the small town volunteer companies or big city companies, had, had, had your membership been trained to deal with a pandemic? I'll answer that in a couple of ways. We've been trained to address all hazards, and that's our national incident management system and the way we do things. And so trained to manage, yes, but there's components that we need, information. Again, just was a, as I talked about during the 9-11, we need the intelligence, we need the situational awareness so that we can apply the principles of the national incident management system to manage the incident. We're very good about managing crisis, but we can only do it if we have the subject matter expertise, such as the health department and some that will play along and be a part of the system and that we get the information. Um, back in, uh, back in uh, the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, I used to teach at our National Fire Academy up at Emmitsburg and um, we had a, um, a two week class called Emergency Medical Services Special Operations and one whole day was devoted to pandemic response and planning. And I asked, where is that now? Um, because used to, we used to have a hard time with the students. They would all laugh and say, there's no way this is ever going to happen. And, and I would like to find them today, but that curriculum, where did it go? Why were we doing it in the nineties and early two thousands and not doing it now? And I think we're, uh, we're terrible sometimes about institutionalizing these things that may happen only every so many years. We get lazy, the training curriculum goes away and then something comes up, it becomes a huge push. I hope after this pandemic and Governor Ridd said he doesn't feel that this is the last one and I don't either, but I hope even if there isn't another one for another 20, 25 years that we put the training in place and keep it up because one of the things that we're famous for, especially in federal funding is getting it up and running. But when the, um, when the crisis goes away, um, the funding tends to wane and before you know it, you don't have that program anymore. I think probably very few people, more so than the members of this commission and staff, know what it's like to uh, to be telling the world that there's going to be a pandemic and and uh, and people think, well, it's, it was, the last one was 100 years ago. It could be another 100 years. So, so uh, this question I want to ask of each of you. Um, so there have been all kinds of lessons learned in the last 12 months. Um, if a year from now this pandemic was gone, everybody was gone. For, let's just hypothetically assume that. And all of a sudden from somewhere comes another pandemic 
that's like this, that, that acts like this virus did, and we have to go through this. What, in what ways do you think you're better prepared? You would be better prepared uh, were that to happen? In what ways do you, do you fear that you still may be unprepared? I think we have playbooks now, so we're better prepared so you can pull the playbook out and you're not having to write it on the fly. Where we're not as prepared is um, the resources that are still needed, um, not only in um, the, the protective clothing and the other types of resources, resources you've heard from the others today, but also this is, this is un, not unlike fighting a war. You need recovery time for your soldiers. So if we get back into something and they're still, you know, recovering from the last, um, we won't we won't be able to fight this one the way we we did the last one. And so um, the states and the local communities just don't have the resources to do that. And that's where we're really going to have to depend on the federal government to backstop um, the nation if we face another pandemic. Thank you. Ms. Bartram. I think. Uh... We have the uh, we have the policies and protocols. Most most all PSAPs have that in place. Um, the cleaning supplies that we need, how to keep our clean centers. Uh, we don't have the problem of PPE that uh, the fire departments and law enforcement agencies have to face. So that'll make it a little easier for us. Our big challenge, if we had another one in a year, would be the staffing. Um, just everyone would probably just be getting over it and they're weary, weary from that battle and have to go into it again, not knowing how long that was going to last. That would certainly be a challenge. Thank you. And Chief Francisco. Um, for us, you know, we're gonna have a stockpile of PPE and prepare uh, for the next one already. And we already are doing that. So we're not behind the curve. That would be the biggest thing. And we've have a lot of, identified a lot of weaknesses that we're already improving on purchasing uh, you know, struggles, getting those things done in communication and the equipment, we have identified what we need in case this happens again. Um, so we're already moving forward. We'll be prepared for that. And we have, you know, a good uh, plan already in place at how we disseminate all information in a quicker, quicker way and open up those lines of communication. So I think we've already fixed a lot of those things. Obviously, this is a long pandemic of over a year now. So a lot of things have already been fleshed out. Uh, but so we won't be behind the curve like we were this first pandemic where you know months goes nobody knew anything everybody's struggling everybody's you know trying to find what they can the resources they need and a plan but we'll be prepared to hit the ground running for the next one now so i think that's what good came out of this this pandemic to prepare us for the future thank you those are all the questions that i have but knowing that ken is after me i'm going to think if i can use up his time a little bit i'll, I'll, I'll yield back joe uh, thanks uh, for resisting the temptation. Uh, thanks, Jim. Ken, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that, Jim. Um, just a couple questions. This has been a very uh, thought-provoking presentation. Um, so, Chief Brown, you talked about, um, you know, how the each state set its own priorities as related to PPE and, and other issues during the pandemics. Um, and you sort of, you made that observation and how the fact that different states prioritized different parts of its, um, its operations and crisis response differently on uh, in, in law enforcement and uh, you know, public safety um, personnel were prioritized differently in different states. 
What would you recommend in terms of the prioritization and the uniformity of that prioritization in the next go round? I'll relate uh, an analogy that came up during this with our president, um, and it was uh, along the lines of, uh, you, you can't really tell the states a lot of things to do, but if they want their highway money, they will set the speed limit at the limit that the federal government wants it set at. And so we felt that it's somewhat the same, that um, there needs to be incentive at the state level to follow the federal guidelines. Um, we need to set um, what is right for the distribution of the PPE and to who is made priority for receiving PPE and vaccines. And by all means, we're not saying public safety is it. There's a lot of people. Um, and uh, just as you heard with our uh, communications operators that fall through the cracks, that needs to be defined and states need to know if they're going to receive this money and this equipment, then you'll distribute it the way that it's supposed to be. It doesn't come in and then you get to change the rules. And in some states, they were changing the rules even at the county level. So the county would say, no, firefighters are not a priority. These are a priority. And that, that really, that doesn't follow any of the science and it doesn't, um, it, it's not something that we representing the nation's fire and rescue service folks can, can live with it. Um, it doesn't matter if you live in one state or the other, you deserve the same protection. Well, I guess that gets to my question. Is there any geographical distinction that you could think of that would mandate a different prioritization in one state from another or one county from another? I, I would say no. Um, you know, I do believe that you know, when you get to, um, there's obviously a matrix. So everybody's a priority. And then if you, there's going to be sub priorities. For, you know, if, as, to your point, if you get to a state where the, the supply chain is interrupted and there's only few to go around, then of course that state needs to be able to make decisions as to how they sub-prioritize things. Um, but we do that in so many other things throughout the country um, today on so many other aspects. I think this is just one of those things we just never really planned for well. And when the challenges hit, it, it, um, there was really no playbook to follow. Okay. Thank you for that observation. So um, I had one other discreet question, Chief Francisco. Um, nice to see you, sir. I just wanted to follow up on your comments about the, um, the effort it took and the sort of additional burdens of enforcing um, curfews and preventing public gatherings and the other things that are sort of more or less unique to a COVID epidemic. And I thought about that just closer to home, reading an article a few months ago about our local police force and how there was almost a little bit of a morale issue because police weren't really all that keen about enforcing curfews, even if it was for a very good public health reason. So I guess just on a general open-ended question, you know, how, how, how much more taxing was it for your department to have to take on those additional responsibilities, which are basically policing behavior for you know public health, um, the benefit of public health, which is sort of different than something you usually do. I mean, for me, it was a lot of it was you know an issue of you know constitutional rights. Like, at what point do we, you know, is is the freedom to move around, freedom to do what they want? Mm -hmm. When do we take that away? What authority do we have? So it was a lot of talking to lawyers. We got to talk to our prosecutors on how we're going to move forward with this. You know, because you have politicians and the health 
people, you know, wanting to push certain agendas, you know, to keep people home. But yet we're kind of at odds with our legalities and, you know, protecting people's constitutional rights and things. So there's a lot of that conversation. Uh, it was very difficult and very trying, very argumentative at some points. And then getting officers to do that when, you know, they don't feel right about it or some did. So there was a wide, wide variety of attitudes about, hey, I'm doing a good job because I'm going to stop people from moving around and spreading the virus because it's dangerous. Some people were like, why are we doing this? Uh, so it was difficult. And, you know, we probably wrote over 2,000 citations, which still have to go through our court system. Um, and then there was a bunch of, you know, talk about, you know, where's that money going to go that we're collecting? Is it go back to the police department? So it was a lot of effort on the uh, administrative side as far as po police administration. Um, and then the officers getting out there because they're taken away from their regular duty. They were having to go out and do curfew violations, you know, go out. They wanted to see on PA announcement, stay home. These are the hours set. You had to do public, you know, forums, basically, online, YouTube. Um, so it was a lot of, lot of effort, a lot of work on top of our regular duties, which our, our regular duties never stopped. And actually, you know, they started to get grow because everybody's at home. You have more, you know, family violence. You have more people staying at mm -hmm. home thinking. So, you know, we started to see a, a rise in that. Um, so it was a very taxing on the police department, to say the least. Well, thank you for that. And thank you and your department for doing what I know is unglamorous, but really important work during a, an epidemic. But I, I can imagine that that was sort of, it was difficult to um, probably to sell that to your department, that that's an important part of the, the job and also to sell it to the public when they, as you said, just want to exercise your constitutional right to walk down the street at 11 o'clock at night. And you have to explain to them that that really isn't your constitutional right. Right. <laughs> okay, that's and, it for me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Uh, it, uh, Chief Francisco, if you have a, a little difficulty uh, convincing people of the alteration in their constitutional rights, I'm sure Attorney Weinstein will be available to assist you <laughs> with the argument. Uh, yeah. Hey, hey, thanks uh, to everybody. I, I, my, the questions have been uh, really good and the answers have been really helpful. I just have one line of questioning comes off of something that uh, Chief Brown said, uh, which is uh, in an area that, that our commission has uh, focused on. Uh, but um, going back to our 2015 foundational report, which is uh, information um, and information. Uh, um, it, trying to integrate uh, or push the intelligence community with all its resources to get into this field of uh, biodefense, particularly infectious disease. So, uh, Chief Brown, you said that uh, you just need a better warning system. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm, I wanted to ask you first, did you have any uh, warning from uh, levels of government, state, uh, uh, are your chiefs, did your chiefs have any warning from state or federal uh, sources or, or basically were you just responding uh, to the calls that uh, came in uh, and uh, essentially uh, following, uh, you know, media and social media? Initially, it was responding to the problem. Um, I think we were, were, we fell victim just like many people did to the fact that this was somebody else's problem. It wasn't really going to hit much here. And then when it did, I don't think people anticipated the um, spread that it did. Right. Uh, rapid. So um, we were behind the, we were behind the information curve from the beginning. I believe that there was information, you know, the, the, 
the federal agencies and others were, were trying to put out information. But again, with the, the lack of coordination in a day's time, we might get five different opinions from five different agencies on what we should be doing. And that was one of the, uh, one of the things that we tried to do here was to deconflict information and get out the best information to our um, member fire chiefs so they could make good decisions. So I think that was really it was that, you know, there's a difference between situational awareness and intelligence. Um, uh, we weren't really into the uh, intelligence um, as more as we needed the situational awareness, the ground truth, so to speak, so that our people could adjust their battle plans um, uh, to, you know, successfully combat the virus that was facing us. Um, and that was a difficult challenge. Most of it was coming through the media. Interesting. Um, uh, Ms. Bertram and Chief Francisco, do you want to add anything to that from your perspective about uh, uh, whether you had any official information as this broke out about what to expect or you just followed the media and responded to uh, incoming? From, uh, from my perspective, um, we were pretty well informed by our medical control and the emergency management uh, department for our county. So we knew it was coming before everything in our state actually shut down. So we had a lot of incoming information. And then, then there was the other information coming in, you know, changing regularly on what it was actually going to be like. But the messages that were coming in from uh, emergency management seemed to be pretty steady. And then they were trying to coordinate with state officials. So that was a seemed to be a coordinated effort for, for us. I can't uh, answer that question for the rest of the PSAPs in the country, but that's how we that's how we dealt with it here. Okay, good. Chief Francisco, how about you? Uh, for us, we, we really didn't have any prior knowledge until our health command, our health professionals really started to tell us what, what was going on and started making plans. So we had really no uh, head start on anything. We were just kind of way behind the curve from the beginning. And information was basically coming to the health professionals to us, uh, not directly to us. And I think that would have been more effective if it came to us quicker uh, or directly. Um, that would have helped out. Okay, that's helpful. Chief Brown, just the last question for you on the same uh, theme. Um, do you have any uh, specific ideas about what uh, should be done, presumably by the federal government, uh, to, um, to fix this uh, knowledge gap uh, uh, and really to improve the warnings that you got so you didn't have to rely on media or uh, incoming polls? I think in general, it's taking a look at who the lead agencies are um, and redefining some of the priorities um, so that um, inf good information is getting out and the right people are in charge. Um, oftentimes, you know, we find this you know, in our business, um, providing emergency medical services in the community is, 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 is healthcare, but it's really about an emergency response system. We right. don't train our paramedics or the, you know, the doctors or the paramedics, they, they get the, the medical training. We know best how to get it out. And I think when it comes to the federal government, the lead agency um, needs to be someone that knows how to manage crisis, who can then say, we need to get good, good, deconflicted information out, and this is how we're going to do it. And so that there's a 
there's a clear leader. It was interesting earlier um, when this bedroom said that NHTSA had stuff on the website that was good. I, I highly doubt that most people know that in the, in the U.S., the lead agency for emergency medical services is NHTSA. Right. <laughs> because that's the way it's always been. For years, we've tried to get that move to DHS to become more operational. Um, and I think now it's going to be the time that we need to look at where the best lead agencies should be and who should be involved in those. Okay, that's uh, helpful. I, I, just this discussion brings to mind a story from way back in my Senate uh, career, which is sort of funny, but probably not much encouragement, which is uh, we were involved in a war. It was in the 90s. It might have been the Gulf War. It might have been the Bosnian or Balkan Wars. And they invited all the senators up to the uh, uh, secure room. And there were probably 60 or 70 of us there for a closed briefing. We were about to go on a week-long recess. So at the end, some high official of the executive branch said, uh, we know you're going home. If you have any questions during the time you're away, uh, here's the number you can call. So uh, one of my colleagues, uh, who was a, a, a bit of a wit, I think it might have been Phil Graham from Texas, and stands up and says, well, thanks for that phone number, but based on this briefing that you gave us today, I think I get more uh, information from cable news than uh, I have from you all. So uh, that's improved, and really, you're entitled to better and, and earlier information than that. Uh, thanks to the three of you for excellent testimony. Obviously, thanks for what you do and your members do. Associates every day, uh, we depend on you and, and uh, notwithstanding a lack of adequate intelligence, warning, even uh, financial support, uh, once again, you did not let us down. You did your best and more. So thanks for helping us today. Uh, you really were a help. Well, I, I think this has been a, an, an incredibly valuable day. Um, and again, we've had a lot of experts uh, from Washington, from uh, universities, from the rest, have really been helpful to us over the life of this commission. But honestly, there's no substitute for somebody who's on, people who are on the front lines. And we heard from them uh, today um, because they share their experiences. The, the witnesses we had, I thought, were excellent, not only telling stories of, of what uh, they and their members experienced in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but really in being able to present, um, sort of step up above it and present some ideas for uh, priorities for our commission. And there's some big themes obviously that emerge. One is about data sharing, another is about making sure that we can figure out as a country how to integrate the public health uh, system more into the emergency response system and also generally to improve our, uh, our public health systems before the next crisis of this kind occurs. And uh, again, I, I repeat, so I'll do it quickly. Uh, in a national crisis, there is no substitute for national leadership. You just can't throw it back to the states and localities and expect it uh, to work well. And I think that's a big lesson we've learned and I'm encouraged that uh, the Biden administration is beginning to implement that. So uh, it's been a very viable day. I thank the staff, I thank all my fellow commissioners. With thanks to everybody for a good day. Uh, one thing this uh, day proves is that uh, 
uh, we've come a long way uh, in, in the, our response to an infectious disease outbreak and learning lessons uh, before the next one. But uh, we as a commission and we as a nation uh, still have a lot to do. And hopefully, and I say confidently, the, the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense can continue to play a really constructive role in that. With that, I thank you all. I look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, Godspeed to everybody.